This is Jocko Podcast number 418 with Carrie Helton and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Carrie. Good evening. I was I was raised in the SEAL teams. And and I know that at least I say that, right? And I know that I wasn't actually raised in the SEAL teams. But when I consider who I am today and what my values are and what my principles are, what my driving forces in my personality are, the vast majority of them came not from where I grew up as a kid, but came from the SEAL teams, or more specifically from my fellow frogmen in the SEAL teams. And there's all kinds of different guys in the teams. There's the guy that worked hard, or the guy that makes things happen. There's that tough guy. There's the chief that looked out for the boys, the officer that kept us out of trouble, the guy that was awesome in the field, the guy that knew how to fight, the guy that could fix any engine, the guy that asked really good questions, the serious guy, the professional guy. There's just all these different individuals in the SEAL teams. And they, and they say that, there's that saying, I guess, I don't want to say they say, but there's a saying that you are the average of the your five closest friends. Well, in the teams, you got a lot of friends. And all those guys leave a mark on you. Especially when you're young, right? I, I've had many conversations with people about the impression that gets imprinted on you in your first platoon. And a lot of times you think that that's the way the world should be, is the way it was in your first platoon. But it does continue to develop and you continue to change and you continue to grow but you really get you really get formulated a lot in your early days in the SEAL teams and everyone leaves a mark on you that you work with and of course there's some guys that you don't like there's some guys that you reject that you look at them and think I'm not going to be like that these are the slackers or the lazy guys or the incompetent guys but the good guys you try and do what they do and that's what I did in my career. I tried to reject the bad examples and I tried to emulate the good ones. And there were a lot of good ones along the way that made a mark. And one of them was a guy named Mark Coach, Cochiolo, who spent 38, 30 years in Naval Special Warfare, actually more than 30 years in Naval Special Warfare. He served in all kinds of different SEAL commands, and including the JSOC command. He rose up through the ranks eventually retiring as a warrant officer, and even after that, he continued to work in the teams. And he had an attitude that I always remembered and I always admired when I was a new guy. A positive attitude that was just always ready to go, and it's an honor to have him here with us, here tonight, to share his experiences and lessons learned. Mark Coach, thanks for joining us. Yeah, man, Um, wow, that's an intro. I was I was getting worried there when he said, "There's those guys you don't like." I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> is that me?" <laughs> it was a setup, <laughs> and it's a dishonor to have one of those guys here tonight to tell you guys how not to act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there'll be plenty of that, I'm sure. There's plenty of not acting good, but yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, no, I I always remember. We'll get to it, but uh, I always, you know, you definitely left a mark on me when I was a young new guy because you were not a new guy at the time. I think you were four or five platoons deep, mm. and and four and five platoons deep, guys can act a bunch of different ways. And the way that you acted, the way you, I was, I think I might have turned 21. Yeah, because we were on deployment. So I was 21. But I mean, I was like young and dumb. 
and full of motivation. <laughs> <laughs> and and you were just a great, cool guy that set a great example for me and some of the other new guys that were out there at the time. But we'll get all that. Um, let's start at the beginning. So, so where'd you grow up? Um, California. I uh, did all my uh, elementary school in a little place called Pismo Beach. Pismo? Yeah, Pismo Beach. Yeah, we were dirt poor. Uh-huh. Me and my mom, dad, and four brothers. And uh, Damn, four brothers. What number are you? I'm two. Number two. two? Yeah. What did your dad do for a living? Um, well, at the time, um, he was going to school. So was my mom. So they were both getting their teaching credentials and okay. stuff through Cal Poly. And, oh, uh, so you were up there. They were up there slow. Yeah. Yeah. But we lived in Pismo Beach. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but, yeah. you know, there's a, a restaurant called Mac, uh, McClintock's. Okay. It's up off of Maddie Road, right, you know, looking over the ocean. Million, million multi-million dollar view. Uh-huh. Yeah, we lived in a little green farmhouse. It was a bunkhouse. Um, <laughs> the rent was like 90 bucks a month. I mean, it was, we were just, yeah, yeah. And so were you kind of like a free-range child that was just running around doing whatever while your kid, oh, parents were going to school? Yeah, big time. That was that was the thing. You know, we, we went to school. We got dropped off either by the bus or, you know, whatever, you know, landed us back at home. And we were just there, you know, running around the hills and chasing cows and, you know, all that. Yeah. We didn't have any money, so it's like you didn't get to, like, <laughs> learn how to ride a horse or anything like that. But, yeah, you run around, chase the horses and, you know, <laughs> yeah, get chased by the bull and just, just oh, God, I, it's amazing. I'm still amazed that uh, all my brothers grew up with all our fingers in sight and both eyes because yeah. uh, we did some really <laughs> stupid stuff. <laughs> and how long did you live there for? Um, well, uh, kindergarten through sixth grade, so okay. about seven years. So when you're in sixth grade, what are you, 10 years old? Um, Maybe 12, actually 11, 12. Oh, so yeah. you had some legit time there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, right there at the beach, you know, of course it was you know, almost three miles to get mm-hmm. to the beach. So and we didn't have any money or transportation. So I grew up watching the ocean, mm-hmm. never learned to surf. No, <laughs> bummer. Bummer. Yeah, swam around in it a bunch and, you know. We'd ride our bikes down there when we were a little bit older, mm-hmm. and we'd swim around in our Levi's or, or well, they weren't even Levi's. They were tough skins. You know, remember those Sears <laughs> yeah, tough skins? Yeah, Sears tough skins. And we would swim, <laughs> we just wearing our pants, and when then we'd get back on the bike and ride home, and you would dry off on the way home, and wonder why you're chafed. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so then, what? Where'd you move to next? And why? Uh, well, the folks uh, graduated and got a job uh, in uh, San Jose, California. Wait, so your parents, they're they are going to school, but they already had four kids. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. My, so was this bad planning or what, no, what's, what's my, happening here? My dad made a course correction. Um, <laughs> he found himself in this really horrible job that was driving him crazy. He's like, screw this. What Ooh, was it? Um, he was working for the California Youth Authority. Okay. So he was dealing with just you know, troubled kids. Uh-huh. That, and, and it wasn't the kids that were the issue. It was the administration. Yeah, the bureaucracy. Yeah. And he was like, I can't do this. I hate, you know, he'd come home and he would just be just completely pissed off. Mm-hmm. And I was too young to remember all that. Yeah. But he was like, you know what? Screw it. We're going to go back, get our, you know, teaching credentials. And, uh, you know, they took turns, you know, uh, you know, working on an odd job. And the other one would go to yeah. school back and forth. And so they both got their teaching credentials there at Slow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my dad got a job at the, actually at the high school I went to. Okay. <laughs> and uh, my mom well, worked at a continuation high school in Gilroy. Okay. Um, but yeah, so we we rolled up there and oh, 
when was it, uh, like 79, 78, something like that. I don't remember. Um, but junior high and high school was all in San Jose. Okay. East side of San Jose, which, you know, it makes like the, or back then, I don't know what it is now, but it was always made in the top 10 for murders in, uh, <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> you know, a lot of gang activity and crap like that. And, you know, most of the guys that, um, that you know, lived around us were either dead or in jail. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but yeah, I kind of stayed it, kept my nose clean out of that as much as I could. What were you doing in, in like high school? Were you playing sports? Mm, well, my folks got us into uh, Taekwondo. Okay. So that's what I was doing. And it, they also taught um, our niece, which yeah. I really liked. Okay. The, the stick fighting, knife fighting type deal. It, it teaches you angles, it keeps you on your feet. You know, it was a. It was, it's it's streetable stuff. Yeah. So I kind of and then later on I, I I trained in when we were in the Philippines with the yeah. Filipinos. Yeah. And then in San Diego we found a place called Sepeda Brothers and my brother and I trained there for a bit. What, what are you doing at school? Are you getting good grades? Are you like a knucklehead? Are you um, just well, passing and getting it done? I was just passing, but I, I really like photography. So I, I was the you know one of the photographers for the school newspaper and yearbook and all that mm-hmm. crap. And you know I thought okay I could probably you know, do this for a living, you know, and that, you know, it was just, it was pretty easy for me. Yeah. And if I liked the subject, I did good in it. Mm-hmm. If I didn't, then, uh, yeah. So I, I think I graduated with a mean 2.3, you know, GPA. There, there you go. Or had you heard about the military? Like what was making you think about the military? <laughs> did you, had you heard of the SEAL teams yet? No, no. In, in 1984, there was no, mm-hmm. you know, unless you knew a SEAL, mm-hmm. you didn't know anything. Um, but you know, both my folks being, uh, you know, high school teachers, they were big on, you know, Hey, you're going to college, you're going to college, uh, but we can't pay it. So you gotta find your own money. And, uh, the Navy had this cool deal where they gave you money for college and, uh, Hey, hey photographers mate, you know, I can go be a Navy photographer for a while. Okay. So that's what I did. And, um, yeah, so I, I graduated, um, on the 14th of June 1984, and on the fifth morning of the 15th, I was on my way to Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Rolling right in. Yeah. Did you know what to expect because you'd never been around the military? Oh, I had no idea. Dude, I, I walked in there. It was like complete culture shock. It, it was exactly what they wanted to do to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah, all of a sudden, you just walk in there. Oh, yeah, here it is. Shut up and sit, you know, stand there. All and, that stuff. Yeah, it was, it, was, um, it was eye-opening, but it was also really stupid <laughs> you know and that's <laughs> honestly that that's how i got interested in the seal teams because it you know boot camp i was expecting it to be a challenge mm-hmm. it was going to be this oh yeah you know di is going to come in and yell at me and throw shit around and no no the lights came on like, okay guys get up i'm like what the hell and it was just about folding your clothes and you know just stupid stuff like that. i was like dude this is dumb what else you got and one of the guys was like well we got this udt seal program What's that? Well, you get to jump at airplanes, shoot guns, and blow stuff up. It's like, dude, sign me up. <laughs> so, Did you find out about that in boot camp, or was it after boot camp? I found out about that in boot camp. Okay, but I. <laughs> so I, um, my mom. I was seventeen, so my mom had to sign 
for me to get into the military, mm-hmm. and she wouldn't sign active duty orders, so I had to go reservist at first. Dang. So I spent. Your mom was smart. It's <laughs> yeah. actually a smart move. You're a 17-year-old kid, you're like, yo, you don't know what you're getting into. How about we do this reserve thing? Yeah. That's actually not a bad move, Mom. Well, yeah, and it, it turned out probably pretty good because um, when my son-in-law was going through training, he said that half of his class, half of the 200 guys were 18 years old, mm-hmm. and none of them made it. Yeah. Not a single one, because there's just not that maturity level yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, Gardner, you know Jason Gardner, mm-hmm. he was like, yeah, of course you know Jason. Um, but yeah, we we heard some stat that if you're under 20 years old, it's a five percent chance of making it through. So yeah, yeah it's like you got to have that little something, I guess, extra little bit of moto. <laughs> Me and Jason Gardner, we were both like 18 or 19, so get some. Jason was actually, yeah. I think he was actually, he might have been 17 turning 18. Wow. He's pretty freaking young. Uh, so did you like do, so did you go to photographer's mate school or something? Yep, I did boot camp and photo mate school, six months in Florida, and then uh, came back and I was a drilling reservist for about <laughs> a year. Uh, the whole what time. What do you do as oh. a drilling reservist in the Navy? Uh, well, I'd drive up to uh, Alameda from uh-huh. San Jose. And take some pictures? One weekend a month uh-huh. and work in the photo lab there. And yeah, take pictures of stuff and develop film and, and just do stupid Navy stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I was like, okay, how do I get active duty orders? And no one had ever gone active duty from that place. So they had no idea. Turned out all I had to do was just not show up, and they would activate me. But I didn't want to be that uh, you know, a black mark, like, oh no, now I got to go to a ship. I can't go, you know, be a seal. Uh-huh. And um, it took, God, it took a long time, damn near a year of just drilling back and forth, hitting the the my recruiter up. And, and this is guys. trying to get to go active duty, go trying to, buds. to go active duty and get buds. Mm-hmm. So I drove. Um, you know, I did the screening test. So I drove down to San Diego, took the test, and ran back and, and, and went home in like two days. Um, Were you doing anything to like train? <laughs> well, funny you should ask. Uh, yeah, it was like, okay, uh, what's the. I was training for the PST because right. that's all I knew. Mm-hmm. So underwater recovery stroke, um, you know, used the, the school pool because my dad was still, you know, well, you know a, uh, an instructor there. So I could, um, you know, just practice the breaststroke, mm-hmm. and I say, okay, you got to run. So I ran some. I uh, got to do some calisthenics. That's never been hard. I could do pull-ups and push-ups and stuff like that. But yeah, um, the first time I ran with uh, with boondockers on mm-hmm. was right. was that day. Yeah. So you had uh, it, back then it was a mile in seven and a half minutes, and I made that sucker in seven twenty three. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, and it was good enough to get me uh, through the door, but okay, I'm going to have to up that number, you know, keep, make that better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I drove back and kept training, and, you know, they finally figured out, you know, that uh, you know how to do it mm-hmm. and uh, activated me, and I rolled back in. And uh, I, w- I got, got to San Diego too early, like three months too early. Um, from my from the class, so you're on active duty. You get activated, get and they activated, send you down here. Sent me down here. They had to go through two weeks of navets training. Mm-hmm. You know, just yeah. You know, <laughs> it was for all the all the guys who you know tried to get away with uh, not going to the reserve meetings and stuff. So yeah, that was uh, a little anti motivational. Um, but yeah, so they they stowed me over at uh, EOD Mobile Unit Three, and so we just did uh, 
slave labor for those guys for like three months. Um, and then, you know, classed up with uh, 141. And how'd that go? Uh, well, it was buds, man. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, had its, its highs and its lows, you know, and people always ask me, oh, what was buds like? Well, it's the, the worst time in your life that you'll ever miss, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because, and it, it, it's so pure, you know? It's like, just survive this next evolution, yep. you know? And that's how you make it through Hell Week. You think, okay, you set these little goals. Like, uh, yeah, uh, there was one guy, Fred Swanson, um, he was a chief, and I was, like, really, really cold, you know, right at breakout. I was like, holy crap, I don't know if I can do Were this. Were you, like, 145 pounds I was something? 143 pounds. There you I go. graduated high school there. That was what was. Buds, I came back from my so first like deployment. zero body fat? Oh, dude, I was so negative. Yeah. When it came to drown proofing, <laughs> and, you know, they're talking, oh, yeah, no, we're going to tie your hands, you know. Okay, but no one's negative. You just got to relax, you know. I'm like, okay, and I believed it. I bought into it, you know. Like, okay, you jumped in the pool. Okay, John, just relax, and you'll float. And so I could close my eyes, and I'm relaxing, <laughs> relaxing, and then I feel my feet hit with some authority <laughs> on the bottom of the pool. I'm like, I look up, I'm like, yeah. well, I'm going to have to figure something else out. <laughs> so while everybody else was floating, I was kicking the whole yeah. time, I was, you know. Because otherwise, yeah. Do they really say no one's negative? Yeah, that, that's what the, that was uh, the rumor was. That they're trying to tell that, everybody. That's what the instructor would say. Oh yeah, no one's negative. Dude, you know? I, I had a kid in my class. He was a he was from Africa. He was like he was an American citizen, but he lived his first whatever ten years in life in Africa. Super nice guy, like a physical stud, bro. They threw, they pushed him in the pool for drown proofing. He just went literally straight to the bottom. With a lot of authority, <laughs> and he didn't come up. <laughs> like whatever position he landed in, like they had to go get him, and he never, he never made it. Like he, yeah. he was just too. He had no body fat whatsoever. And if you don't have any body fat whatsoever, you are going to be negative, and you're going down. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's there's ways to figure it out. I was comfortable in the water because I grew up around the yeah. water, so it's like okay, I can. I I knew I could figure it out. Yeah. But I mean, you got to you know swim the length of the pool, you know, the long way and back, you know, with your hands and feet tied. Well, that was after you know kicking for you know those yeah. those twenty breaths or whatever the hell the, the the requirement was. So it, it was a lot more energy mm-hmm. that I had to put out, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so you time. say you were saying you were freezing, and some chief was going to hook you up. Oh yeah, so uh, Fred Swanson, he was the uh, the the seal motivator. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that that was there for that class. And if any other instructor had heard me just you know whine a little bit, it was would have been a full court press to smash me, right? But he just kind of nah. What, here's what you want to do: never quit during an evolution. Always tell yourself you feel like you're going to quit. Quit after the evolution. I'm like, okay. Uh, okay so yeah i mean you're freezing cold and then what's the next thing you do oh a race we warm you up again you're like okay and i was like all right and then that was it man you whatever it was it could suck it would just be the worst possible thing it's like i'm gonna make it through this and then i'll see what's you know if see what i want to do you know and you want to see the sunrise you know it's like okay there's my goal see the sunrise or make it the next meal i mean getting you know Four meals a day yeah. and, and still just losing weight. Yeah, and yeah. It was, but yeah, you. you um, so I, I've uh, been in one hell week and I've seen one hell week. You know, you, I, you I worked only one, worked one hell week. Only worked one because okay. I was always on the island when yeah. I was, uh, you know, um, an instructor. Um, but 
watching a hell week right there as things are going down. You're like, oh, my God, we are killing these kids. <laughs> Somebody is going to die here, you know. But, yeah, there, there's a method to the madness. Yeah. Um, and it, um, it, they're still doing it right. You know, you're never going to get everybody that needs to go. I mean, it doesn't take much <clears throat> training to motivate somebody to just survive through yeah. whatever that next evolution is. Yeah, there, uh, there is like a – there is – you know, people that are going to make it through Hell Week, just talking Hell Week, definitely there's people that are like, oh, they made it through because they were super motivated and they want to make it happen and they bring together the team. And there's a bunch of guys that are like part of that team that's getting brought together. There's some dudes that are literally just trying to make it through for themselves. And it is a group of people. It's not huge, but, and I actually had this conversation. I was working with the Admiral when I was the Admiral's aide. And he said something along the lines of, he's like, you know, we went down and secured a Hell Week. You know, I didn't. He went down and secured a Hell Week. I stood there like a freaking jackass, <laughs> you know giving him whatever he needed and but you know when we're coming back he's like you know the one thing is he's like you know one thing Jocko it proves these guys are tough and I was like hey sir sometimes I go sometimes it proves they figure out a way to sneak through the system and he was kind of like that's a good point because you know it's true <laughs> there's some guys that figure out a way they do just they in the right spot they get in the right spot on the boat they get in the right spot on the log they get in the right spot they they're, they're good enough to they, they sit out that one evolution. They can tell when something counts. Like they just skate, and there's, mm. there's definitely a group of guys like that. And it's easier to do now because uh, the, the, there's information out there. Well, yeah, I was going to say that too. With, look, there was very limited information when I went. And I went in, in 1990. So 1991, I was in Buds. So the amount of information for you was just like there was nothing. Yeah. Now... The, these guys, they have like the class schedule. They watch the movie. They seen the videos, the documentaries. So they, they kind of know what's coming. But I also, yeah, but I also know that the instructors now they they have countermeasures for all this shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they have fake schedules. Like it's, they're gonna get you. They're gonna get you. Hell week's not gonna be easy. Buds is not gonna be easy. Anyone that thinks it's gonna be easy is gonna have a real hard time. <laughs> like they're gonna figure out how to make it hard. You know, summer hell week, winter hell week. They're gonna figure out. Oh, a way. you're gonna, gonna get cold. You're, you're gonna, gonna be cold. cold. It's just how how long do you stay in the water? Yeah. You yep. know. Um. Yeah. I mean, buds for for us, it was basically the same thing. Um. Was just you know, first phase was a kick in the nuts, and second phase was an underwater kick in the nuts, and then third phase was here's your gun and your bomb. Oh, and you're kicking the nuts. Um, when we figured it out, when, as I became an instructor, um, we wanted to make it so that we're actually training them. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that was, that was the big focus then at me being an instructor. What year was that? Um, geez, uh, I got to, to buds, um, as the third phase training officer in December of 2007. Okay, so we were well into the war and everything, and we oh, need yeah. guys to be better. Yeah, yeah, guys. You know, and, and I, looking at myself, um, I was still fighting a lot of training scars because I didn't learn how to shoot in buds. You know, I, yeah. I did okay. I, I, you know, got my, my two E ribbons, but, yeah. uh, you know, I had no idea. Um, and it wasn't until I, I, you know, got to that SOCOM unit that yeah. you're talking. JSOC? Is that yeah. what we're calling yeah. it? Okay. Um, <laughs> That's that's when I learned to shoot, yeah. and I was fighting all of these really bad habits. 
So I figured, well, if we could get these guys early on, no bad habits, and drill them up. You know, I'd tell them, hey, look, I'm not trying to make you as good a shot as me. I'm trying to make you way better because mm-hmm. I'm still fighting these training scars from years ago. Yeah, because the what I was talking about in the opening there, the first impressions that you get in the teams, like your first platoon, it's hard to shake some of that stuff. You're like, you, you're getting... You get a mold on your brain, and you're like, "All right, and it's just in there," and that's what you think is right. And you got to flats. You know, you talk about the training habits of like your shooting position and all that stuff, but also just your mindset and the way you think. If you're not careful, you can think that what you learned in your first platoon or your second platoon, you can think that that's the right way. And every and it's like, man, it's first of all, there's many, 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 many different ways to skin a cat, and. Anytime someone says, no, this is the right way, I'm all, I always get a little bit suspect. Like, man, there's a lot of right ways to do this. Yeah. A lot of right ways. Yeah. When they say it's the only way, it's like, no, no, yeah. no, okay. I'm, I'm immediately skeptical of your uh, your intentions. You know? <laughs> did you have any challenges in Buds? Was anything like super hard for you? Did you fail? Did you get rolled back? Uh, no, I didn't get rolled back. Um, I made pretty much everything every time. The one, the one thing was the, the tread. Um, mm-hmm. my legs cramped up and I sank and I mean, cause I was, like I said, you know, I had no fat on me and I got cold Ooh. and the cold was, was just, it would go right through me. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, when that happens and you're like, now you're required to put out this extra effort and you know, when both your, your thighs just ball up on you, it's kind of hard to, to tread with your hands out of the water and the tanks on your back. Yeah. Um, so that I came back the next day and did it, but yeah. <laughs> right then it was like, holy, you know, I ate a bunch of bananas, you know, <laughs> get that potassium in there. Yeah. That was the extent of our nutritional information at the time. Had cramps, eat bananas, all good. <laughs> they weren't even really telling us to drink water yet. Like they, I think w- drinking water as like a performance or health thing was kind of coming in around when I was in Buds, like some of the instructors would be like, oh, you should drink some water? Like, it wasn't, hey man, you really need to drink water. You know, you're yeah. gonna get dehydrated, it's not good for you. It was, it wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah, I I can't remember ever taking a drink of water <laughs> in Buds, you know, in Hell Week. Yeah. We had these like nurses that were following us around trying to figure out what the X factor was. They did it for three oh. classes, you know, they, they measured or, you know, they watched what you ate when you went through the line and you know, estimated how much you were drinking and all this. And um, yeah, doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Yeah, what they, they found out, you know, the, the, the results of that was um, the guy who quits and the guy who makes it through are exactly the same. You know, yeah. the difference is, you know, neck up. You know, it's mm-hmm. whatever your brain can can make your body do. Yeah, um, and they just confirmed it for us. We knew that already. Yeah, and you were all good in the water because you grew up swimming up. So like pool comp and all that stuff, no factor. Yeah, no, no. It was like um, when they did. Uh, I think I was the third guy to go. So they were still, the instructors were motivated. You know, as the, as the day goes along, he goes, okay, we're just yeah, going to do this. Next yeah. guy. No, whatever. no, this was like, yeah. Uh, the guy who did me was uh, was very motivated. Um, <laughs> but I remember, uh, you know, using a breathing technique. It's like, going, okay, calm myself. All right, here we go. And as soon as I got in the water, they were playing the the uh, the theme the song from uh, from Jaws, you know, <laughs> dun, 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 on the dun. underwater speaker. On the underwater speaker, yeah. 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 So immediately that put me at ease i was like okay this is funny right and they're like okay i just swim along that line and then they'd come and they'd hit you and they'd do this and it just got progressively worse and 
I just, yeah. it was, it, you went through the process and it yeah. was like, no problem. No factor. No. Now, I am, you know, being comfortable underwater. I liked being underwater. I could hold my breath for a long time. So it wasn't, you know, that big a deal. And it was just like, hey, you just do what they tell you. I, f- I failed pool comp the first time. And the instructor was, he was also highly motivated. And you know him. Uh, he's a warrant officer, uh, old UDT guy. Mm. And so he, I'm underwater and he just, he doesn't, he doesn't like hit me and start rolling me. He just comes down and knocks my mouthpiece out. And then he goes up and then he comes down and, and as I'm putting it back and knocks it out again. And then as I'm putting it back, he knocks it out again. And as he comes and put it, so I'm getting like a quarter of a breath each time by the time I suck the water out of the tube and all this stuff. And this goes on for 17 minutes. And I'm not, I'm just, I just keep dealing with, you know, getting the, and then he just comes down and pulls me up. And he's like, you failed. You looked uncomfortable down there. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was so bummed. And I was, you know, but what are you going to say? You're like, because I came up, I feel fine. And he's like, well, you didn't look fine. You looked uncomfortable. And I had literally stayed, you know, the slant of the pool where it goes from four feet. I, I had only taken like one step forward. So I was right there the whole time for 17 minutes. And pool comp was only a half an hour long, but at 17 minutes. So pulls me up. He's like, you, you, know, you failed. And, and you know, go to the wall. And so I failed and I ended up passing it the next time. But, you know, fast forward 20 years or something or 17 years or 18 years. And he now we're at trade debt together and I'm the trade at OIC. And I was like, hey, man, you, you remember failing me in pool comp? He goes, oh, yeah. And I go, why'd you fail me? He goes, I was just fucking with you. <laughs> I was like, bro, that's jacked up, man. This is like my whole life. And I could have like freaked out and gone into some downward psychological spiral. And he's like, ah, oh, you've been fine. I was like, okay. <laughs> that was the real test for you, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> so that shit was not cool. I was like, yo, what are you doing? Uh, so you get through second phase, no factor. Third phase, island. Uh, well, actually, you guys did the work. You guys did it backwards, right? Was the uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and that was uh, that was interesting. Um, yeah, island wasn't you know you just okay think tactically and they're teaching this stuff and you just kind of do it, but it wasn't really training. It's like like I said, you know, <laughs> it was like Hell Week with a gun. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, it's what it was. I mean, hell, we did uh, uh, surf passage on the rocks out there, you know, by Birdshit Rock, you know. With IBSs yeah. in third, or it's in second phase. I'm like, what are we doing out here? And uh, um, we did full. I don't know if you. They were still doing this. The uh, the full UDT oh, yeah. cast and recovery and, and uh, demo. obstacle loading. You know, yeah. so we're down there, and the obstacles were at like. 23 feet i'm like bro yeah hey everyone this is not an obstacle at 23 feet <laughs> no boat's gonna hit this we're good they're like oh well you still gotta blow that shit up still gotta get it and the yeah. weird thing about buds is you never have you're never it's kind of like going to an mma fight you're never gonna be in perfect shape so in buds even though like oh i can hold my breath for a minute and 48 seconds you get to buds now you have like you always have a little bit of a cold and some kind of weird lung thing and a f- <laughs> nose full of snot yeah, so your breath is always shitty your breath holding's always shitty so going down to 23 feet to load an obstacle you're getting like one half of a knot each time check <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's um i i went down on one and the surge was mm-hmm. was really good. And it was like 20 feet plus. Yeah. <laughs> and I get down there, I'm like wrapping my ra- legs around the horns, and I'm tying this knot, and I'm tying this knot. And then all of a sudden, I don't have to breathe anymore. Oh. I was like, oh. And I was like, well, but that was a symptom of something. 
but I couldn't think of what it was right then because your brain's already like, and the knot was like, it was there, but it wasn't you know, a good one. I was like, okay. And then I so bubbles came out of my mouth and went up and I kicked off and followed the bubbles up. And uh, the next day I know I was laying on the on the, the uh, zodiac. Well, no, no, I, it, it, it's zodiac. So it was a long way off. I was just laying on my back and floating, and I was warm. And the water was like fifty degrees. But as the oxygen came back in, it was like, oh yeah. So did the the cold, you know. But yeah, had I been caught, if they, Ooh, it, I, 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 yeah, I'd you know, a bunch of guys have gone to the some of those breath holding schools, mm. and it really helps them a lot. And there's there's like a there's like a knock at the door. Like the first, they teach you like, oh, the first knock at the door, like you wanna breathe, you don't need to listen to that one. The second one, you don't need to listen to that one. The third one, pay attention because you're about to black out. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, when you do it, you can feel it and they learn how to get through those things. But it's, it's definitely, guys improve their breath hold. They'll like double their breath hold in three days by mm. learning what the real signs are and what they can push through and what they can't push through. So <laughs> it's pretty cool. I've done a little bit of Wim Hof method. Uh-huh. That's you know, and then that increases, but you're relaxed at that point. You're not like trying to tie a knot on a freaking Jap scully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is so useful uh, now. But and honestly, while I was a, the warrant officer there, the third phase training officer, they they wanted to get rid of it out of training. I was like, dude, well, what are you going to call the school? <laughs> Basic underwater demo. Oh yeah, that's right. And the thing about it is it's a really, it's a perfect exercise for like the little, little microcosm, what you're going to do with the rest of your career. Mm-hmm. You're going to plan this thing. You're going to do a dirt dive, you know, and then you're going to take this into this hostile environment and execute. Yep. And it's going to be different and you're going to have to figure some stuff out. And it's, it's so much of the SEAL teams is learning and training to have an open mind and to figure shit out. And I was talking to a guy the other day that's, you know, in ULT type scenario. And he was like, oh, I don't focus on this or focus on that or focus on something else. And I was like, hey, this the training that you're going through is to make everyone be able to look at a problem and figure out how to do something with it. And it doesn't matter if that problem's in the mountains, doesn't matter if that problem's in the desert, doesn't matter if that problem's in the jungle, if it's in the city. It, where that problem is, you're going to learn how to look at that problem apply our basic tactical principles to it and come up with a solution and that's what you're doing and all your guys are doing that too so and you know a good example is when when, uh seals ended up doing security for the iraqi government like none of those guys had done that specific mission before got tasked with mission like okay we're gonna figure it out and they made it happen and Mm -hmm. kept those guys alive for a long time uh i was just talking about this with with bobby holland you know we did uh, over a hundred urban sniper overwatches in Ramadi in 2006. Mm. And yeah, I was like, you remember how many we did in workup? And he goes, uh, and I was, zero, we didn't do one. But we did, we did uh, whatever, rural sniper, or sniper hides, recons, and so the principles, we just took those principles, okay, yeah, well here's what we gotta do, here's what we gotta set up, we gotta make sure we have good security, be in a good spot, check our, our you know, escape routes, and we'll be good to go. And that's what we just took that and applied it to an urban environment and you're good. So that's what it is. And that's one of the best things about the SEAL teams is you learn how to solve problems and you take the fundamental tactics that we have and you can apply them to any situation. And we started doing in training out here, we started doing key leader engagement training, right? So you're going to meet with a key leader Mm -hmm. of a village. And the first platoon 
we're, we're putting guys, so guys had started doing this overseas, and now we started training guys to do it back here. And the first platoon that did it, they were kind of confused, like, well, what should we do? And basically I looked at them and said, if this was a target that you were hitting, how would you set it up? And they were like, oh, we'd have security over here and we'd put this over here. And I was like, well, so you're going to meet a guy. It's the same thing. You, do you want to have security? Yes. Where would you put it? Same spot. Okay, great. So it's the same thing. It's just a, a little bit of a different posturing when you roll into the target. Instead of rolling in guns up, ready to kill people, you're rolling in there, you know, weapons down, ready to shake some hands and, and meet and greet some, kiss some babies, and it's all good. And if something goes south, no factor. Take you half a second to turn things around. So that that mentality of looking at problems and really training and what you're talking about, uh, obstacle loading, something that we did in World War II, but it's a skill set. You're gonna work together with your friend. You're gonna figure out how to do it. It's hard. It can get confusing. You have to coordinate with the other people because you gotta tie that whole thing together. It's just a big, it's a ba- basically, and I've been saying this a lot when I t- talk to companies right now. It's everything you're doing is, is basically a big team building exercise. And that's what you're doing. Oh, we're gonna work together because if you and I are going through land warfare together and you think you should do something, we should hit a target one way and I think we should hit another way. Now you and I start like arguing about it. Now we're getting to fight and you, you got your guys on your side and my guys and the platoon's falling apart. And so we're testing the team to see if they can, you and I can go, you know what coach, your idea is better. Let's go ahead with your, uh, cool. And we can figure it out and we move forward. It, 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 it identifies the egos and it identifies the 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 fissures in a platoon when you put them in these situations and it happens in a class but that's so much of what the seal teams is is can we as a team look at a problem and apply our fundamental tactics to it come up with a solution go execute and and that's actually if you think about it that's actually what we're kind of good at yeah (laughs) and the reason we're kind of good at it is if you can figure out how to get off of a ship with a zodiac boat with four zodiac boats transit 14 nautical miles, drive across or insert swimmers, have them swim across in wet gear, come across, unwaterproof all your gear, set up your breathe. Like there's so many little problems that have to be solved by every, go hit a target, capture somebody, have a life jacket for that person and a dry suit, you can swim this person out through the, like there's so many things you gotta figure out. And, And if you can do that in the water, everything else is easy. Everything, take take me in a helo, take me in a vehicle, take me on foot patrol. That's all a joke compared to salt water, yeah. six foot seas, sand, mayhem. <laughs> like hey, it's a disaster. That surf zone <laughs> is, I mean, you know, oh yeah, look, it's just a couple lines of surf. Yeah, and I'll drag all this stuff through there. I mean, you know, um, and it never stops, you know, but that's, that environment right there that's what puts you mm-hmm. in that it's the worst place in the world to actually have to get across and and do it you know if you can't solve it with technology you can just solve it with you know planning and and you know just guts and just go do it mm-hmm. um and, and and we did it enough over here we got a lot of a lot of beach space and a lot of surf here at uh, on the on the strand yeah. and man you just learn so much you know going through that yeah. and you know Okay, it's big surf. All right, so what's the best way to get through big surf? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you you figure it out, and it's gonna tumble you. You're yep. gonna be all screwed up, and, and then finding your guys, getting everybody back together again. 
I mean, not everything's like that that cool commercial where they're like, oh yeah, there's footprints and then they're gone. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like no, 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 yeah, yeah. The reality is there's like, one set of footprints. They're gone. No one knows where he is. <laughs> yeah. When we started getting away from the water a little bit, so like mid war, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, all of a sudden in in ULT and training, like all of a sudden. The, the MarOps goes from four weeks or five weeks down to three weeks, down to two weeks, down to like a week. And some people are like, oh, you know, we're losing our ability to work in the water. I said, hey, we'll get it back. Like if the if the war turns and we got to get in the water again, hey, the first night that a platoon goes out and does OTB, they're going to be a disaster. And then someone's going to be like, hey, we need to have waterproof signaling devices. Oh, yeah. So that's what they learned that night. Then the next like, hey, we need to make sure we have long tow ropes in case someone gets stuck inside the surf zone. And that's like a little, here's a little detail. You have a couple Zodiacs. You put really long tow ropes in them, like 100 yards. And somebody can swim out a tow rope to the other boat. You can tow the other boat without having to go in the surf zone. Those are like, they'll learn that lesson day four, right? And all of a sudden you fast forward, you put them through five weeks of MarOps. And what they'll have done is they'll have done what we just talked about, which is they'll take that problem set, they'll apply fundamental tactics and they'll make stuff real, they'll they'll get good at it again. And that's what, that's why I think like our breachers are so good, our snipers are so good, our, our JTACs, like our guys just get into stuff and they just keep peeling back layers until they get it to its core principles and then they just build it out. So mm-hmm. that's the mentality that we get. And some of that comes from loading obstacles yeah. at San Clemente Island at yeah. night. <laughs> that's what it is, dude. <laughs> Check. Oh, yeah. uh, so you, so now you graduate, buds. And what year is it? Um, this would uh, be early, like so let's think February uh, 87. So what's going on in the world? Well, um, not much. Not much at the time. Um, you never know. But I, what what did happen um, is the Iranians started shooting silkworm missiles at uh, at the uh, shipping going through the strait there. Uh-huh. Um, oh, that's right. This is when the um, like they put the barges out there. Yep. Did yep. you do that? Well. <laughs> The guys who manned the barges left Unit 1 in the Philippines and went to man the barge. And that left a hole there. So I had just got into this platoon, right? You so know, where'd you go? Team 5? Team 5. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing our, our workup. And it, you know, it was August. So I, I got there in February. And in August, they deployed us. No kidding. No trident. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Um, just over to unit one to, to basically sit in that place yeah. and and be that, that that check mark, you know. How old are you at this point? Uh, Twenty. Damn. Yeah. Oh, that's right, because you came in right out of high school, and then you spent a year. Yeah. Doing yeah. Jack. Yeah, just. But so you're still pretty young. I mean, yeah. twenty years old, freaking outstanding. Yeah, I had just turned uh, twenty when we started buds. Um. So yeah, I, I was still yeah. doing that. Um. What so, was your job in the platoon? Were you a uh, gunner? No. Or were you a point man? I was, I, well, I couldn't be a point man because I was a new guy. Yeah, so, so I had rear security. security. Yep. And um, so I, I kind of helped out with everybody. And I was like the intel guy. So I had to have the, <laughs> the Blu-ray machine was up and all the pencils were sharpened. And, you know, because I was a PH, yeah. right? Oh, you're the intel guy. All right, cool. 
Yeah. Um, it, being the Intel guy in a SEAL platoon sounds so cool. <laughs> when you're an Intel new guy, like you're literally sharpening pencils. Dude. Like, where's the freaking maps? I, and, and this is why I got good at other stuff because I was always helping somebody else. You know, the ordinance always needs, you know, someone to help, you know, move the guns and count the guns and, you know, whatever, prep, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, air, when that happened, I'll be in there, you know, learning to pack shoots and whatever else. Uh, building ducks, that was a big, you know, group um, you know deal anyway but we were i was i was still going through remember back in the in those days you went to buds six months long and then you get to uh uh your platoon and you had six months of carrying your little pqs book around you know performance qualification standards yep. and you know, i was on you after a day of work you know going to the airloft hey chief uh can you sign me off here? And say, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Just empty my shit cans and uh, you sweep and mop, and then we'll talk. I'm like, damn, okay. And that's how you kind of you had to make that happen. You had to get those signatures, and then you had to get the, your your board at the end of that six months, and that's how you got your trident. I, I think that was the same yep, for you, right? Same with me. Yep. There was no SEAL tactical training, STT stuff at the. You know, there was no SQT, nothing that. We had at Team One. I went through STT, oh, so okay. I showed up there. And we didn't have our tridents, but we immediately, not immediately, but after a few months, they let a couple rounds of new guys show up, and then they put us all through STT, SEAL Tactical Training. Yeah. And it was basically like a limited platoon workup, but we went and did air, we went and did land, we went and did MAR ops. So we did everything. They just gave us a higher level, gave us some actual Kind of, kind of the model of what SQT it's, is it now. Is what, it is what, well, SQT is awesome now, but. Yeah. It was a yes. It was early. A, it on, was of course neophyte version of that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. no, we didn't get any of that. Damn, dude, <laughs> none of that. Went to nine with my, my platoon, and uh, yeah, you just had to kind of figure. There was no training going on. It was just you know you were you figured stuff out as you went along, and I think part of that we've lost a little bit because you know the guys are like you know, uh, thoroughbred horses from, you know, boot camp all the way up. They know they're going to go to the teams and, you know, so they're given a lot of stuff. Um, back then, I mean, my idea of seal prep should be like, okay, here's your workout. You make it happen. Mm -hmm. No, the, you know, whereas these guys are like, they're showing up in the morning, they're yeah. getting their workout, they're getting, which is good. You'll learn how to do stuff and, yeah. you know, maybe not, you know, injure yourself. Um, but you're kind of missing that self-starter yeah you know because you had to do that if you, you had six months and if you didn't get that done and you didn't get your uh, your board done or you failed it um you had one more chance and then you're gone so i mean yeah so we did that you know in in the philippines <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> so so you go on deployment you're backfilling these guys that were over in the gulf um taking care of the the oil platforms is generally what they were doing yep and you're, you're you're on your phone. How long was that deployment? That was a. It was supposed to be a short one, but um, heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got in some trouble. <laughs> we went to uh, at the time they, they thought the Philippines was going away, so they're looking for other beaches, other places. So we went to this little island called Palau, and uh, I wasn't even in this fight, but my platoon was. Mm -hmm. I was sick as a dog, and I didn't go out that night. Um, and so they had big run in with the locals. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm banned for life from the island of Palau. <laughs> Me and the rest of my platoon. But so that, that caused some issue. Um, you know, they, we got home from that one. And then immediately um, there was a, uh, a target 
a real-world target that was supposed to have silkworm missiles on it. Wait, you came home came, from no, deployment? No, no. We went oh, back. you came home from yeah, back to So you back, go back to the PI. Back to the PI and immediately get tasked with this uh, this target that's mo- that's moving silkworm missiles. Damn. So like, yeah. I mean, uh, that... that um, uh, you know the first uh, Charlie Sheen movie, you know yeah. Navy Seals, <laughs> that where they go and they they get on the boat and they that was that was us that was our uh, that was your that, to that was what we were supposed to be doing. We were in a VBS at sucker and uh, so they they flew us out there. And meanwhile, the admiral who was kind of in charge of this area, he really liked the Palauans, Ooh. and he he went to the the CEO at uh, you know. Unit one, and he's like, "Sorry, they're on a secret mission." <laughs> this admiral did not like. That. Yeah, it was the wrong answer. So, uh, yeah, he was real motivated to uh, to hammer us. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, the 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 op came down to the last minute, and Reagan decided he didn't want to, mm. you know, do any you know high seas piracy or whatever. Um, so they solved it another way. Not us. How f- like did you load helos? Did you? Oh, did, well, okay. For three nights, we you know like okay, okay if we're gonna wake you up at two o'clock in the morning, if you, if we don't wake you up at two o'clock in the morning, then just you know come up at seven and have breakfast and we'll talk about it. And for three nights, it was like that, and we were doing runs and you know just and again you know CQBs in its infancy, yeah. and we're just you know we're figuring stuff out how to oh we're gonna land here fast rope onto the, this part of the, we had pictures of the boat and. Ideas of like, what is that? Is a gun emplacement? And nah, it turned out it was a uh, fire hose or something. No, no, it was a swing set. <laughs> because the, on the the, the the list of people on the on board, apparently there were people that brought their kids. Yeah. You know, as part of this, they work and bring their transport. Well, I don't know what the hell, but yeah, I was like, what the hell is that thing? <laughs> it looked like a damn. No, it was uh, playground equipment. But. Did you get your Trident while you were overseas then? Yep, yep. We got to try it in overseas, um, and uh, and then well, after all that came back, we went back to the PI, and then uh, they started the, the the hammering of us um, over the incident in Palau, and they would send guys back, um, like okay, the platoon's going home, and then they said, well, we're send the the married guys first, so they'd go, and then like no, no, we're gonna keep you guys. So we, they had us; they were interrogating us every day. Over, I don't know, I think there was some alcohol or something that we had brought with us to the I, I, There was some trumped up horse crap. But anyway, so yeah, this would this went on and they're like, okay, go to the pool, study for your uh, your trident <laughs> until 1600. If we haven't called you, then you're, you're, you're good. So from like 10 o'clock until 1600, we were at the pool, you know, studying our, our PQS books and whatever else. Um, and then 1600 roll around, we go out in town and drink our faces off. Mm-hmm. Um, and they finally got bored with that. And, you know, it took a while. Um, but we were the last two, me, Jeff Payne, um, and like two other guys, uh, and our chief, Fred Swanson, that who, who had helped me out earlier, who was the chief of my platoon. Um, they basically had to drag us kicking and screaming onto the bus to send us home because yeah. P.I. was uh, – it was magical place, <laughs> and uh, so we went to XOI for that one. And uh, as the I'm, me and, and Painter in the back, and we're getting read the riot act by the uh, the XO. And at the end, he's like, "But I would feel that the extra time that you had to spend in the Philippines was uh, punishment enough." <laughs> and I'm looking over, we're side eyeing each other, going, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." 
anyway, but that was my first platoon, and that, that put the hooks in. It was like it had everything. It had party in the PI. It had a, a real-world mission, even though it didn't go down. Yeah. It was like, no, this is, this is me. I'm staying. And, uh, so you roll your next platoon? Yeah. Um, so we rolled back. Um, Team 5 had put in a gym. Okay, they didn't have any, you know, they had a little weight locker or whatever. But no, it was full-on gym. So I was like, okay, it's time. And I started lifting. And I went from 143 pounds to 175 pounds in about six months. Yeah. Every time. I was like 22, whatever. I, I, every time I walked into that gym, I left, you know, <laughs> I, I, I walked in. I could lift more than yesterday. It was like, yeah. And, you know, that's nutrition. Yeah. Okay. I drank a lot of beer and microwave burritos. Yeah. I mean, that was the. Uh, yeah. You know, but you're 22 years old. You're freaking dead. Basically. Your whole body's just a big testosterone-producing machine. Yep, yep, and then just boy, get jacked. I put it out, man, and it was like, yeah, boom, just got bigger and stronger and not faster. Uh, I always kind of sucked at running, but you know, whatever. Um, yeah, then we got. Uh, Did you step up to being point man in your second yeah, platoon? Second platoon, right point on. man, um, and it was an arg. So oh, okay, get yeah, some. got to ride the ship. What Ooh. ship was it? Uh, we spent time on the Denver and the Duluth. Uh, I did a whole six-month deployment on the USS Denver. <laughs> Probably slept in the same <laughs> damn compartment we did, did yeah. Wait, was it 117 degrees? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, right at the waterline, so uh, there was a splash, you know, bing, 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 all night long, yeah. That yeah, was us, you know. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, regular Navy guys, they've got a job on that ship. Yeah. We're just cargo, you know, yeah. so... That's when you really learn to like drink your motivation juice, you know, like, oh, coffee up and then go lift or whatever. You had, otherwise, you just sit in your rack going, yeah. oh, my God, you know, yeah. what the hell's going on here? Did you hate it? Um, being on the ship sucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> going different places. I mean, we hit, you know, Australia and Hong Kong okay. and, you know, the Philippines a couple times and Japan and Korea. And, you know, so it, there was a lot of, you know stuff that we got to do dude my first so my first appointment i was with you or i saw you we hung out i was in guam right that's my first opportunity and i was 21 years old and it was you know you're basically you know you have this fat per diem checks and you're doing whatever you want like we and th that early time in guam we had great relationships with the police we had great relationships with like locals it was all it was just like awesome we do everything hang out it was great and then i my next appointment was an arg platoon and I was an E4, and it was like E4 back on the ship by 10 o'clock. Like there was li almost no rules whatsoever in Guam when I was 21. So now I'm 22, yeah. And they're like, you know, E4 is back on the ship by 10 o'clock, and I'm kind of like, hold on, bro. You know, like, what are you talking about? I'm I'm in the freaking station. And they're like, mm, does that does that ID card say E4? Because if so, 2200. I mean, in, in Guam, we weren't even getting warmed yeah. up at 2200. The party was starting at 2200. So now they're saying, oh, you got to be back on at 2200. But I found a good way around that. I'd go out. I'd bring uh, my running shoes and my shorts and a T-shirt, go out till whenever, come back at 5 o'clock in the morning, go on a two-mile run with that backpack on that was filled with my out yeah. going out clothes, <laughs> come running back up to the ship. You always went for a run because the change of – Shift was whatever, like six. So, yeah, I left at five thirty. Just did an eight miler. <laughs> Your breath smells a little alcoholic. <laughs> well, it's from you know 
from 2200. <laughs> yeah, I got to run that stuff out of my system, man. Yeah. I'm sweating it out. Just freaking dummies. Uh, so, so you're on this ship. Anything happened on this while you're on this freaking shipboard deployment? Bunch no, of- nothing, nothing really that mentionable. I mean, there was a couple little things that, that mm. were yeah, everything, you know, the, the spin ups that happened, yeah. but, um, yeah, nothing. Um, so that was the first half of 1989, and we come back. Our gear is cut, getting taken off the ship. Uh-huh. I come back into uh, into work one morning, and uh, the executive officer calls me in. I'm like, oh, shit, what's going on? I'm, I'm expecting, you know, a problem. He's like, uh, hey, Coach, can you be ready to uh, deploy again in, like, six hours? And I was like, I looked at him like, well, let me think. You let me go home and get my pool cue. And then I just moved my stuff from the incoming pallet to the outgoing pallet. What had happened is. Uh, Guy got hurt or something. Yeah, yeah. Not really hurt. He uh, Last night, all he had to do was not get in trouble. And he gets drunk, steals a bike, has a fight with the cops in Coronado. And he's in the can mm-hmm. and he can't deploy. So I get Hey, here you go. Oh, yeah, you were the intel. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're first lieutenant guy now. Okay, awesome. You're doing motors. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I can do motors. Yep, and that's what, um, you know, that's how I got my second, my, my, my first, my second two deployments were back-to-back, basically. I spent 10 days of 1989 actually in the United States mm-hmm. and went did a spec ops platoon um, in the Philippines for, uh, for that six months. <laughs> yeah, it's like, woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was at, I'd been in training cell, so now I was at Team One, done three deployments, and now I just got put in a training cell. And of course, no one wants to go to training cell. We want to go on deployment. Mm-hmm. And the master chief of the command comes down and at quarters, and he's like, "Hey, we need two guys to go. On, we need two guys to go on deployment like tomorrow." And me and my running mate, we were just like hands up. Like didn't even look at each other. Just we were roommates. We were just like hands up. And the freaking master chief that was in charge of trade at was like, put your down. And then we you know we proceeded to get our ass chewed. Like you guys are in freaking trade at. You're not going anywhere. We were like, all right, hey master chief. They just said, you know, like they just said they needed someone to go on deployment. Like us two have our shit in cruise boxes right now. We're ready we're to roll ready right now. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing better than being that kind of e dog at a team when they're they're like, hey, we need volunteer. You're your hand is up. Boom. Where are we going? Don't care. Mm. Send me. Well, let's go. Let's get it on. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anybody to I had to call at home to you know. Hey, honey, is this going? Nah, I was like, oh, let's go. Let's yeah. do it. And that was that was the good attitude. That that. Yeah. I mean, the higher up state, they noticed that stuff. It's like, yeah. oh, he didn't even he didn't know what the hell that was. And he's like, well, I'm I'm game. <laughs> like, all right, note to self: if yeah. you need somebody, go to him. Yep, that's a hundred percent it, man. And then what do you do over there on that deployment? Was that when? Uh, did the volcano go on that deployment? Um, no, that was the was next one. one. Uh, this one was the uh, uh, the revolution. Oh, in, okay. Uh, in PI, yeah. So what was going on? What was that like? Eh, uh, so Corazon Aquino, yep. she was the wife of the. Uh, it was it's politics and the PI is all screwed up. But yeah, they decided they were gonna do a coup on her, and um, so we we were there and we were. Um, it kind of locked down on the base. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys, there were guys that were training with the Filmars. It wasn't our platoon, another platoon. They were over on Green Beach. And uh, when this came down, they were like, just quietly took all their guns because they didn't know which side they were going to be on. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, but then we, uh, we 
got ready, our mission on that one was going to be if she requested extract from the palace, we had to go get her. So there you go, Mm -hmm. back to the surf zone, right? Figuring out, figuring this stuff out. So we're going to have to drop a boat because there was no place to land a helicopter where the palace was. Mm -hmm. But across the river from the palace, there was a ball field. So we had to figure out how to drop a a duck, basically, in the river, get it inflated, and get it over so we could ferry her and like her bodyguard over here. It was like nobody else and us. And then we're going to combat loss them and, you know, fly out. Well, no one ever done that before. You know, the, the limp duck is you kick it out and it takes you 15 minutes to get. There was no time for that. So we figured out how to do it. We just uh, honeycomb the crap out of a full, full-blown duck or full-blown uh, Z-bird, only one. You put it on a, uh, a big piece of plywood and, uh, you know, tied it all together, keep it all together. And you went out with your stuff on and your flotation. But, uh, you know, um, so Brad Cooper, he was the air guy, and he, was, he came up with this. And the CEO asked him, he's like, can we do that? He's like, oh, yeah, we do it all the time. He's like, okay, cool. <laughs> and so we do this on a dry run. And, of course, I'm the, you know, I'm the first Louis guy. So I, I got to be the first guy in the, in the, the boat to, uh, to get the engine started. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm the sea anchor. Because as the helicopter's hovering at, you know, five knots or whatever, and they kick this thing out, the rotor wash would have just blown this empty boat away. So they, I was holding on to the bow line as they kicked it out. And it was like, gink. And I'm like, head first, boom, into the water, climb up the line, get in, cut the lines, get the motor down. By then, the other guys have gotten close. They pull the, uh, um, the pallet, basically, from underneath, get the thing started. It was like three minutes, and nice. we were running. And we could do that with two of them. And right after that, Brad's jumping up and going, I knew we could do it. I knew, I knew it would work. <laughs> and yeah, so now it's uh, actually, they, uh, they do that. They practice those yeah. now. So anyway. So, so that, you guys are on standby? Yep. Did we, you ever get the call? No, never got the call. We stood by, we bounced around, we were ready to go. Um, there was, you know, a lot of a lot of moving parts. That, that was our part of that was was going to be that. Um, some other guys were going to go. When there was a uh, oh a high rise that had um, journalists in it, and they were going to take that down, you know, land on the roof and just clear it to, you know. But none of that ever came through. They uh, they worked out another uh, another way. But you were spun up for a while. Dude, yeah. It was spun up, ready to go. It was like, all right, chomping at the bit. Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> and you come home from that one. What's next? Another uh, platoon. Yeah, another platoon. I uh, dropped into um, uh, Delta platoon at that point. And um, in the first, jeez, what did we do? Uh, we did a, a night, night combat equipment jump um, on February 14th, 1990. Static line? Static line. In the desert out here? Where? Amigo DZ. Okay. <laughs> and uh, um, so when I hit the ground, my left ankle snapped, and I was out of the platoon. And, uh, I mean, I, I got out of the airplane. You know, it was, I had a lot of twists and stuff. And I'm, I'm bicycling out of that, getting all that stuff going on. And, you know, you got to get the combo equipment off of you. Mm-hmm. I never did. Didn't get there. By the time I was getting to that, Ooh. I was I was seeing the uh, the horizon come up. I'm like, oh. oh, here we go! And I hit, and it snapped. Boom! Right there. 
So I'm laying there. I'm like, and immediately I'm like, oh shit, they're they're gonna, you know, they don't know where I'm. It's night, you know. So I'm I'm yelling, hey, I'm over here. I'm down. I'm hurt. You know. I'm, and then uh, Dano gets over. And says, hey, coach, quit screaming, you pussy. Get your ear pro out because I couldn't hear myself. <laughs> it's like really really loud. So Doc gets over there and he cuts my boot off and uh, and he's like he's poking at it. He's like, oh, I don't. See. And I go to lift my leg up and my foot stayed on the ground my leg came oh. up and he's like oh oh don't do that and so as everybody who came over like hey what's going on what's going on hey check this out <laughs> like, he's like stop doing that you know? yeah so i got pins and plates and all that uh, crap so it took a little while to um to get better and right as the gulf war was oh. kicking up so i missed going i i just got my cast off um there was, uh, in fact, there was a guy, I forget who it was, that couldn't go with their platoon. I'm like, oh, I'm in, I'm in. And I'm like, <laughs> Master Chief's like, Coach, you can't even stand up. You know, yeah, but we're not going to do anything right away. Yeah. I'll get I'll get better. I'm, I'm good. He's like, no. no. So he had to, he put me down for that one. And uh, and then I uh, got in another platoon right away, you know, and just started the work up. Uh-huh. Um, and that was when met. Kind of two boat blew up. Okay, and we were, you, were you on deployment for that one? Yep. What was that like, dude? Um, it was funny. You hear this thing, you know, the, the, the rumblings, and like, oh yeah, there could be a you know volcano. I was like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, thinking it's a long way off, and it was. Um, and the wind normally went from Subic the other way, so it was going to push all the ash away from us anyway, right? So it's rumbling. The volcanologists are like, oh, no, this is going to happen. So they move all the Air Force guys from Clark, just descended on on Subic Bay uh, and you know, brought their cars and parked them on the ball fields and everything, and then just raided the damn PX. So, that you know, they, it was like locusts showed up. You couldn't get toothpaste or anything else. And when the, when the, the mountain blew up, it was during a typhoon. So the wind changed and blew everything our way so it was like concrete you know just falling down sticking to everything um and of course you know uh, the american buildings were built like bomb shelters so they could you know handle we figured it was probably about 40 or 50 pounds per square foot damn that was yeah because we cleaned all that crap off the uh off the roofs with paddles we wore them down to nubs you know, just in case it was going to happen again, we didn't know. But town was was not built for that. Mm-hmm. You know, everything. It was like... Just collapsed? Yeah, collapsed. So because this is going on, we're like, all right, well, nothing for us to do. So we went out in town <laughs> as this is happening, right? So you're drinking... So like as ashes are falling? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what else are you going to do, did, right? Did, did you go no, drinking. Did no one say like, hey, this is going to be some kind of a big natural disaster? Or was it kind of like, oh, there's going to be some ash, no big deal? It was a Ticano quake, man. There was earthquakes. There was lightning that was orange because it was igniting all the stuff that was in the air. Um, and it was at noon. It was dark like midnight. And you guys were like, party time? End Whoa, of days. Like, yeah, we're like, what else are you going to do, man? <laughs> yeah, like Guam, you have or, you know the typhoon parties, right? Yeah. It's like, But here it's like, all right. So we go out in town. And um, you're drinking in your favorite bar, and you hear some creaking and grinding, and you're like, hmm. And you run outside, and the bar collapsed. <laughs> the roof had just come in. And like, okay, well, I guess uh, bar. Rolling Stones is done. Let's go to Slim's, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, and we spent some time out there doing that. And um, yeah, uh, the the next day, the next time the sun came up, um, it was hard to navigate because all your landmarks were gone. Um, even the you know, palm trees were just like peeled down like like bananas. Any any palm frond that was horizontal because it was wet, it made this stuff stick and just. It, the weight of it just tore everything down. Hundred-year-old trees, just you know, the the branches had fallen off. There were people getting killed. Um, n- nobody that I knew. <laughs> but like out in the villages, were like big yes, there was stuff collapsing, and yeah, was there a humanitarian disaster that you guys had to be like help out? Not well. The the what we came up with, they came down with it for us to do was clear all the the ash off of the buildings. Mm. So there wasn't a shovel, so we used our paddles, and we just, you know, scooped that off just so that there would be less weight on there. Uh, you know, we, we did officers' houses. We did uh, the barracks. We did everything. It was the big mission, bro. Yep, working all day. Just That's the big mission Scooping right ass, there. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they figured out that, hey, you know, and we had just gotten back from uh, Australia. I had a good Australia trip, right? And then uh, – or no, that wasn't Australia. That was Thailand. Even better, right? Um, and then this happens, and then they go, "Okay, well, we we we're supposed to be worldwide operational. We're not because you couldn't take off. You know, the uh, the the dust was eating the uh, jet engines. Okay, <laughs> so what they would do is that once they got the runway cleared off, they would basically tow your plane to the you know because you couldn't run it. You know, couldn't run the engine, you know, to taxi. Mm-hmm. So they would tow the airplane to the, you know, the the base of the runway, and then they'd wind it up and go, and that was okay, right? That wouldn't damage the engines too much. But that wasn't good enough for being this worldwide capability that we were, uh, you know, supposed to have. Um, so they decided to move us to Guam, mm-hmm. and it was my platoon. They got moved to Guam. And that's, you know, that wasn't the Guam that you remember. Mm-hmm. That was the Guam prior to that when there was like nothing there. Nothing there. There was no no unit, no debt, no nothing. They set us up in an abandoned building and we moved all our crap in there and we just, you know, it's just basically so they could say yeah. that we had a capability. Um, but yeah, we were, we were just out on our own. It was, <laughs> and it was whoa. just your platoon. Just my platoon, yeah. Uh, and then there was a, a Team One platoon that joined us, um, and uh, you know, but they did like separate stuff. They were, you know, whatever they did theirs, we did ours. You know, but you know, we were just sitting there waiting for the the balloon to go up, living it, in open bay barracks, and it yeah, it sucked. And so the PI gets shut down. You finish that, or is that when you're when you were in Guam? You're like, hey, I wouldn't mind coming to the unit. If it's coming over here. Or did that? Did you get no, voluntold? There, there, there was no, there was no unit, um, and there was no idea that that was going to happen. Oh, you know, okay. there were no idea they were. They've been talking about moving the unit for years. Mm-hmm. You know, so eh, whatever. Um, so I got back off that deployment. I was like, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go over to the Philippines and hang out for two years and and work the you know the uh, at the unit. And I got the orders. And then they switched the unit to Guam. So my orders said Subic Bay Philippines, mm-hmm. but uh, they didn't. You know, yeah, I, I went to the uh, went to Guam for two years, and that was. Um, what was your job? 
I was the current operations petty officer. I was E five. I was you dude. Know, that's insane, dude. I was an E five for seven years. <laughs> Because I was not a rate grabber. I was like, I, I want to, you know, show up with my gun and my bomb and let's go to work, you uh, know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we did, we set up targets wait, for the did you say operate, what did you say? Operations? The current operations current ops, petty, petty officer. officer. Yeah. That is freaking awesome. I know. <laughs> and I said, what do you do? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I write some stuff down and, you know, and, and again, it, it wasn't that hard. Mm. So... I you know worked out all the time, and, you know. I led PT because it was more fun than just you know just doing it on our own. Because we had to you know three days a week. You're out there like, well, I'm out here. You know, I'll do the counting and yelling and whatever. And um, you know, you just do what you do for those uh, two years. It, uh, you know, we set up targets for the yeah. you know when the, the guys deployed out there, we'd set things up for them yeah. and all that. So you know, unit stuff. Yeah, we. I know when I deployed there, as soon as we got on the ground, they like gave us a target and we had to go hit it. it was a training op, but they gave us the target. We had to come over the beach. We had to go up in the kill house. You probably set it up. Yep. We went in there, shot a bunch of balloons or whatever, <laughs> and pretty cool, you know. And then that was that. We got ready for whatever exercise was next, but. Yeah, that's when I first remember running into you, and I just remember you being, you know, there's a lot of guys that would have two, three, four platoons that would kind of be, uh, it's one thing for a guy to be like an asshole to you because you're being an idiot, which is not only understandable, justified. it's actually justified, yeah. <laughs> but then there's some guys that would be assholes because they're assholes, and like you were a guy that was cool, and you'd like, teach and like hey you should do this or hey try this or hey come over here just like give good guidance to a younger group of guys which was me and my buddies so i always remember that i always remember you you having a good attitude and and you were like uh doing what i think it's tony tony afradi says like just being mayor just like just having good relationships with people whether it's the cops the bouncers the girls you're like you just could kind of maneuver and know a lot of people which is an important thing yeah, that, relationships. That was that was my actual job. You know, the current operations. I was like, okay, that's what I did at work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, whether it was you know the bars in town, you know, all the all the girls would you know hang out at the beach. So mm-hmm. yeah, you get to know their names, you get to know the bartenders, you get to know the bouncers. We worked with the cops. You know, yeah. we trained with them in the with the the kill house. So I mean, we could do no wrong. Yeah, you drop uh, drop a name, like everybody knew this. Was a, forget his name but he was like famous on the island yeah. and he was like their big SWAT guy so I got pulled over a bunch <laughs> like, yeah. get yeah. a police escort after you get pulled over yeah yeah it was you it, build good relationships and you don't act like an idiot because eventually we seals wore out their welcome welcome there pretty bad yeah. I think they've recovered now but the, the other side of my job there I saw was to help the teams I, I want to make better team guys and I know from my experience of just being thrown into stuff and having to figure it out, that kind of sucks, mm-hmm. you know? And so that being able to pass, what I didn't know that much at that time, but I knew enough that I could, you know, I wasn't, you know, I'd had, what, four platoons under my belt. So, you know, I did what I could to make anybody that would wanted to listen yeah. that much better. Yeah, and that's that makes an impact, you know, on a guy, like, like I said, me and my buddies that were kind of knuckleheads and we all wanted to like, be better you know our attitude was like we wanted to be good seals 
That's all I ever want to do is like, I want to be a good SEAL. So someone can show me something about shooting or someone can show me about breaching or someone can show me about whatever. I wanted to know because you don't know Jack. Yeah. And so I always appreciated that that attitude. And I would love to tell you that I really did a good job of that. And I will say it. I did that. I, I was too much of an asshole if people weren't doing good. I was a little bit too much of an asshole when I was younger. You know, like my second platoon, my third platoon, I was not, you know, if you were jacked up, I was a real asshole. And so, so were all of us, you know, we just had that bad attitude. Uh, but we also really wanted the guys to get better. So when there was a good guy, we would like invest. We, what it is, we care, we just cared about the teams and cared about the platoon and we wanted the platoon to be awesome. And so when a guy was doing, a guy wanted to know something, we'd freaking, we, we didn't go home, you know what I mean? We didn't go home, we didn't have anywhere to go, we didn't have anything, so, oh, you wanna do more runs? Well, cool, we'll stay here and do more runs. Mm-hmm. Oh, you wanted us to show you how to set up your gear? Cool, we'll show you how to set up your gear. But if you wanted to go home, or you you didn't wanna take the time to get your squared away, you were like an enemy. And, and, and I was mad, you might, me and my buddies, we were like mad at you. Because yeah. we were in the freaking team. This was our family. And now all of a sudden we got someone in the family that doesn't want to carry their weight. They're like, oh, this is a problem. And I probably went, I, instead of like nowadays, I would have been better at like saying, hey, man, here's, let me show you how this works. If you do show up without your gear squared away, that tells us that you don't care about what's happening. Do you care about what's happening? Yeah, I care what's Okay. So part of caring about what's happening is make sure you get your shit squared away. I would probably be more like that now, back then. I was a little bit more, uh, you know, of a dick. <laughs> yeah, well, age and maturity, man. I mean, yeah. you, you learn how to talk to people yeah. and, and to get the effect that you want, you know? Yeah. And the effect is like, I want to make the, this guy better. If he's not going to listen, he's not going to listen. But you've got to give it that, that best chance because you, you come in hard. Yeah. And remember, he's a team guy too. Yeah. And, you know, you just start button heads where if you come in a little softer and be like, hey, here's what we're seeing. And we don't like that, you know. So you fix this, please. Yep. And you know, and here's how to fix it, you know. Yeah. You know, give yeah. You can't say, hey, don't do that. It's like, here, do this instead. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah. So I, I definitely had some growing up to do in that respect. I have had those guys. I mean, because of course they all stay in the teams. They're all, and we all became friends. And they, you know, I'll see them at the reunion, or I'll see them wherever at a memorial service, and they'll be like. I'm so glad you guys were like that. You know, they're they're fired up now, but still could have been better. You yeah. know, could have could have done a better job. And I I wish I picked up more of that from you than I did. But you know, I also had other influences. You know, there was, there was other guys <laughs> yeah, that were we like that, that. That's how that's how it's rolling. Like mm-hmm. you, this is a family. This is you know, in my mind, like we're counting on. I'm counting on you to keep me and me and my friends alive. You're part of this. We're all keeping each other alive. And there's not even a war going on, by the way. This is just like me being crazy. But it's well, also like what the job is. Yeah. And, and, you know, the guys that put me through training, most of them were Vietnam guys. And so that was big. I was like, no, you, you know, you have to do this. You know, um, they came from the war. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was like, you know, yeah, you're, you're going to be there for your, your buddies. And this is why everything, you know, they say, oh, yeah, it's all our, our SOPs are written in blood. Well, no kidding. Yeah. They are. But guys tend to forget that and you know it becomes more personal yeah. you know, so it's not you just being you know screwed up like oh yeah we're going to no you got to be ready for it though yeah. you know yeah it's a def it was a definite gang mentality for us 
for me and that crew of guys, and you know all the guys, because that crew of guys, of new guys that in that platoon when I was over in Guam when you were there, we all stayed, well, a bunch of us stayed together, and we were tight, and we stayed together for three straight platoons. And so, you know, and a bunch of us, we went to Bud's together. So it was like, you know, seven years of 24 hours a day, yeah, doing shit together, so, it's us against the world, you know, and that's what you end up with. And yeah. if you're part of the platoon, you know, that means when we're going, we're going. That means when someone calls you at three o'clock in the morning, like, hey, we, we're we going. People yeah. get, you got 15 minutes, like, where are you at? Oh, you don't care about us. <laughs> Gets hostile. <laughs> yeah, and, and better or worse, I never had that. Every time I moved, I moved, uh, the, the guy I did the most uh, deployments with was Jeff Payne. He was my first, my second, and then he was, uh, while I was on a platoon, he was doing the SEAL uh, support debt, mm-hmm. you know, SSD or whatever the hell it was. So he was over there at the same time. We just weren't doing the same yeah. stuff. So I I kind of was just, I, I never had that, that click yeah. to, you know, to hold on to. Yeah, I hate to use that word click, but I use the word gang. It was kind of a click too, to be all, if we're gonna be all keep it real around here. Yeah. I don't know though, do clicks beat the shit out of each other if they step out of line? <laughs> but we had, we had a great time. And, and even, even those, you know, my second and third platoon, like the guys that we were with were just, we, I still talk to them, I still see them. Like when I see them, they're, fired up you know so i guess it all works out in the end but i from like you said a more mature scenario being a little bit having a better understanding of building relationships and cohesive teams being more positive is a better way to go (laughs) yeah yeah it's hard to understand that when you're 22 but that's how we roll man uh So you're over there in Guam for a couple of years, and then you screen to go out to the East Coast yep. and and go through selection. You get picked up. Yep, I um, did my screening, and yeah, that w- that was it. It was like, okay, cool, off you go. And I was looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. You know, I figured, okay, the I felt I felt gypped honestly mm-hmm. because I missed the Gulf War. Yeah, you know, I was like, damn it, you know. But the, you know, my leg was broken long before there was any even rumblings. You know, mm-hmm. um. So it wasn't my fault, but I was still felt like I missed something. So I want to get into a fight, and the best place to get in a fight was over there. Yep. So, yeah, I threw my hat in the ring and, uh, yeah, rolled out, um, showed up, uh, and the training officer for selection mm-hmm. immediately hated me. <laughs> Straight up. I'm like... And I'm not used to that. I'm not used to guys hating me. I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, hey, yeah, coach, whatever. And uh, no, yeah, he, your he, nickname, coach, is very fitting. Like, <laughs> like your nickname suits you really well. Like, coach, yeah. it's coach. You know, he's here to coach. He's here to help out. It's coach. You know, that's yeah. what I've always thought of coach. So that's a weird. <laughs> that's weird for somebody to hate you out of the gate, dude. Yeah, and he hated me, and I know because at the end of training, he's like, coach. You know how much I hated you. I'm like, yeah, I know you didn't like me very much. He's like, no, 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 no. I hated you. What was? Did he tell you why? I was too happy. Okay. Okay. Well, there I, I was too positive. But yeah, you know, and he just had this buck up his ass about me, and he tried to poison every everybody else in the cadre, you know. And uh, I had to work so hard, dude. I mean, uh, I hate well, you because you're too happy. It's freaking that, that's just, the team. He just dude. hated that's me, but yeah, teams, yeah, my attitude know? was just like I'm just like a happy-go-lucky. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. I'll show up, you know. 
hated it, hated it. And um, so I had to win over all the uh, the cadre, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was like uh, Pat Trey was big into Muay Thai mm-hmm. and stuff. So I was his punching bag. I got out there and just, and I laid into him. He beat the snot out of me, but I kept coming back. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, got a thumbs yeah. up from Pat. And uh, Mark Lee, not the one you know that, yeah. um, they're both gone now, but, mm-hmm. you know, I had to light him up with simunition because he figured I was going to be looking, you know, in the hallway, not where I was supposed to be. When he came through the door, I wasn't. I was looking right where I was supposed to be, and I lit him up. Thumbs up, you know. So I just had to do that for everybody and then, you know, survive, you know, six months of, uh, of selection. And, um, yeah, so that, that, was a, that was a rough time. And selection is it's just like buds. They put you in that same scenario, except there's a lot of, at the time, a lot of alcohol involved. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to be up. You know, drinking with the cadre, buying them drinks, and then being ready to do whatever we were doing, whether it was diving, skydiving, or shooting the next morning. So, you know, that was that was the uh, the intent back then, I guess. Well, luckily, you at least did some preparation for that. In oh yeah, my my, my liver was uh, was in, in in good training. You know, uh, yeah. Um, and then, so you're out there. You you got you're out there at that command when the Bosnia stuff was going down. Yeah. So that's pretty. That was pretty awesome at the time, right? Yeah, that was like our, our best thing. You know, the the Pifwick operations, yeah. the personnel indicted for war crimes. So we were basically kidnapping people off the street. How how cool was that? That was awesome. That was really. Give, give us a rundown. Like, well, how did it go down? Um, okay, the one uh, I can talk about. Um, he called himself the Serb Adolf, and. Um, just voluntarily giving yourself the name the Serb yeah. Adolf. All right, <laughs> you get the down check, homie. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, but he wasn't high enough on a rank to have anybody helping him. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't have the intel. The higher ranking guys had intel, and they would know when we showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went over there to catch these guys, and we did some stuff, and couldn't find them. And I'm like, okay, so. We, pulled back and then went back over but this time they shipped us in shipping containers <laughs> oh, nice. so yeah forklift brought in you're hanging on the the trojan horse they call it little straps to hang on to you know, and they, they wheeled you into the uh the big clamshell you know hanger closed it up and that's where we lived for a couple of weeks and uh yeah we end up um we snagged that guy and had another guy that was uh, a dry hole who had obviously had enough yeah. intel to, yeah. to know, you know, if something was going on, so they bugged out. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was cool. We did that for. Mm, Were they like low vis ops? Where you like roll out in civilian vehicles oh, and stuff? Yeah, civilian vehicles, civilian clothes, everything. You know, you have a bunch of guys. Um, you know, the, the guy driving the van mm-hmm. would look like you know, would you would pick him. You know, as long until you open your mouth, you mm-hmm. just look like you know one of the locals. Yeah. Um, but the back of the van was full of ass eaters <laughs> with uh, you know you know have our MP5s and full kit just yeah. ready to go. You know, <laughs> it's funny we were still using MP5s back then, isn't it? Yep. It's freaking crazy. Yeah, dude. Uh, when did we get the the CQBRs? That would have been. Hmm. Late nineties, early two thousand, ninety nine, two thousand. I can't remember exactly when, but yeah, we basically turned in everything except yeah. the the K's and the uh, and the SDs. What do you think about this recommendation? I I don't know why I stumbled upon this idea, but you know, people always say like, "What's the best weapon for home defense? What should mm-hmm. I get for home defense?" How about that MP five for a home defense weapon? You know, 
Yeah, honestly, it's it, so it, good. It would be good. The biggest problem with it is nobody knows that manual arms. Your manual arms is yeah. M16, yeah. M4. Okay, that's where you know you know where the charging handle is. Yeah. It's automatic, and that was like the biggest thing when we went to the MP5. Mm-hmm. It was because Princess Gate had happened, and the SAS had them. So yeah. everybody who was anybody in the you know hostage rescue you know realm was carrying an MP5. Yeah. Um, but what would have been smarter for us to do was go with a Colt Commando and nine mil because yeah. all you know. But it wasn't as cool. Yeah, you know. But the the MP5. If you if you're a normal person and you're mm-hmm. like, all right, I need a. I don't really have a weapon for my home defense, and I need to get something. The MP5. If you're gonna learn something for home defense, yeah. okay. How, how much does one of those cost? They cost a lot. Yeah, yeah like so twenty five, three grand. You know, yeah. for anything yeah. worthwhile. Um, what I have for home defense, mm-hmm. um, I made a nine millimeter AR. Okay, so you agree that having a nine millimeter platform, like submachine gun, rifle type, yeah, is a good choice. It's a good choice for most people. Yeah, the recoil's low, and then so I built a special one. CMMG makes this radio delayed blowback, uh, you know, system. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the the roller delayed, but it's you know different. Mm-hmm. But it, it keeps everything nice Did and you say light. Radio what? Radial delay. Radial blowback. Delayed. Okay. Yeah, this thing's pretty cool. And I took an eight inch rifled barrel and found a uh, an eight inch. Uh, we'll call it a high volume linear compensator. It's basically a suppressor with no guts in it, right? And I pinned and welded it, right? So it's on there, so it makes 16 inches, which makes it a rifle. Mm -hmm. So it's California legal, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it also, because it it directs all that blast away from you towards the guy you're, you're throwing lead at, you can shoot this thing without Air Pro. It's nice. loud, yeah. but it doesn't. It's not going to ring your bell. It's mm-hmm. not going to give your wife tinnitus and you know deafen your dog or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's you know, it, but it, it shoots a decent round. And you know that eight inches. You know the Germans they always uh, yeah over engineer everything. Yeah, that the uh, uh, MP5 barrel is seven point seven something inches long. Like mm-hmm. okay, this is eight inches. I think that's optimized <laughs> for nine mil. We'll go with that. Yeah. And then I added that other piece on the end so that uh, to make it legal. Is there anyone else that makes this recommendation? What do normal people make recommendation for a home defense weapon? Uh, you know, you ask ten different people, you get ten mm-hmm. different answers. But shotgun is what yeah. they uh, they come around with. The thing with a shotgun, though, I mean, obviously you can't shoot as accurately with a shotgun as you yeah. can with the thing that I always remember. The thing that I always loved about the MP5 is. You could just drill nails mm-hmm. with that thing. You could put round after round after round after round through the same freaking hole. Yep. You can do that with uh, with the one I built yeah. too, and it has AR, you know, uh, function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, How's the reliability? It's been fine. Nice. It's been, and I put it together myself. Uh-huh. I mean, I you know, I'm actually talking with some people to make one commercially. Oh, now everyone's you know? gonna want one. They're gonna hear this. They're gonna want to order it up. Yeah, Coaches I guess we'll have to figure this out. Nine yeah. mil freaking, <laughs> yeah, get some. But the thing, so you got nine mil. You could use a round, like a frangible round, so you're not punching through your walls and hitting hollow other points. family members. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah there you go. Yeah. Hollow points. You're going to be shooting super accurate. There's no recoil. Yeah. They're easy to shoot. And like it's a. So who's going to be de- defending your house? Is it a Navy SEAL or is it yeah. your daughter? Yeah, your yeah. wife. Yeah, you know so. That's the thing about the shotgun 
they're going to take it out. They're going to shoot it once and yep. be like, oh, my God. And they're not going to train with it. Mm-hmm. You have to aim a shotgun. You don't just point the damn things. Plus, you're responsible yeah. for every uh, one of those pellets that mm-hmm. comes out, right? The AR platform is just so ergonomic, so easy to use. You know, um, and I set mine up with uh, a light, a red dot sight, mm-hmm. and a sling. This is a no-brainer all day. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you can, I can hand that to any one of my daughters, you know, whatever. In five minutes, you can have them, you know, punch in a little, a little tiny group at yeah. 10, 20 yards. For easy sure. Easy day. No recoil, no no real, you know, blast issues. My wife's she's recoil sensitive and, and blast sensitive. She's real sensitive, right? She's a girl. <laughs> she's awesome. But you know, that was her thing, you know, she's just not not good with that. So a shotgun, pff, no, yeah. that ain't gonna happen. Uh, a lot of people talk uh, pistol. I'm like, okay, well pistol's good, but if someone's coming to invade your home, chances are they're gonna have a pistol or a sawed off shock, something small. Okay, and if I'm gonna get in a gunfight with somebody, I want to have the upper hand. And if I'm home, I'm bringing my full-on gun, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have so I've got one in, in, that's set up that like that in nine mil and one in three hundred blackout. Oh yeah, and they're set up exactly the same, so I can train with the nine mil. Mm-hmm. But if I want to throw that uh, you know two hundred twenty grain subsonic right. round at somebody, in case that's that mine. Home, in case that home invasion goes to the yeah. streets, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In case I got to reach out, you know. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's just me. I'm a gun guy, so yeah. I was like, I think about something and I go and build it. I, well, I, yeah, the thing about a pistol for home defense, and look, if it's you and me, like all day, of course, no problem. But. My wife, my daughter has to pick up a pistol, stressful situation, it's night, like there's mayhem mm-hmm. going on. You, Their group at, at whatever, at 10 yards, is gonna look like a shotgun blast compared to with one of those, with a submachine gun, it's like they're gonna dial that thing in, it's yeah. game over. Yeah, and it's easy. It's, it, you know, you've got, you've got two points of contact, mm-hmm. it's small enough that you can maneuver around, and okay, in, in your, your home defense scenario, you're not clearing your house. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're going to collapse back on the weakest or least mobile individual's room, and you're going to hold there, call the cops, and you know, with the door closed, you know, you let them know, hey, I'm armed, I'm in here, and if he comes through the door, you smoke him, mm-hmm. and you've given them forewarning. Uh, this idea that you know maybe I might clear the house, mm-hmm. but I've kind of done that uh, a little bit. But even then, one man CQB is not optimal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just FYI, I'm 100% clearing the house. <laughs> my CQC, my one man CQC is optimal. <laughs> some, some people are getting dropped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you do you, man. I mean, but it, it, it all depends on who's home and, yeah. you know, where I'm at and, you know, what's going on. Um, but yeah, my recommendations for, you know, self defense shooting, because yeah. that's kind of my big focus now that I'm not working with the Navy anymore. Mm-hmm. I want to make Americans. I want to make them um, better prepared. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was going to get into this, um, but um, so for a long time, I was focused on making Navy SEALs better. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that anymore. So now I've shifted my focus to the regular potentially armed American. Okay. Now there's plenty of guys out there that want this information. And this is what ties into why I'd, did the the stuff with tactical hive mm-hmm. um you know and i don't know if we're getting ahead of stuff but cool um yeah 
I, uh, we do, I do videos for Tactical Hive. They're on YouTube. And I don't hold anything back. I don't like tease and then, hey, you got to come to my you know, course. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I will show you everything that, that I can in that 10, 15, 20-minute you know, spot. You know, I'd, I'd, if you watch it, if you do it, you'll get better. Because you know, maybe you don't have the money to come you know, pay me my mm-hmm. price to you know, go shooting with me. Um, but I want you to come away with something. You'll get better quicker with me. Yeah. You know, because I've done it for such a long time. You know, when we built that course uh, at, uh, at Bud's, I put a lot of stuff together, you know, as a team. We put these things together and you watch it happen and you see guys making mistakes and you figure out how to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, you reverse engineer everything. And then we started training the, the instructors that would come in. Um, they're only there for two years. And that's not a lot of time. So I have them ghost me and, you know, watch how I correct, you know, whatever the problem was. And then they would listen to the mm-hmm. words that we're using, keeping yeah. everything, you know, common. Um, and then in, in no time, you know, they could fix about 80% of the common problems guys had. So it was a big force multiplier. And I look at that and I'm like, all right, how can I shift this over to just regular folks? And, you know, the regular marksmanship training, closing one eye, line up, you know, front side foot. That doesn't, most people, if you want to learn to be a target shooter, yeah, go do that. But I'm going to teach you how to point shoot first, two eyes open, because two eyes are going to be open in that stressful situation. And you're going to have to deal with, you know, using natural point of aim and, and, and you know, spend enough time on your grip so that it naturally points to where you want it to, even without looking at the sights. Because you ain't going to be looking at the sights. Mm-hmm. You're going to be looking at the target. You know, because that's where the in, you know, the interesting information for your lizard brain is, right? It's like, that's the danger spot. So you're going to be looking there. So instead of doing like we went in buds, we had the first week was all marksmanship training and the second was combat shooting. And so I've taken basically the, the, the first week off the board and just do wave tops of the second week mm-hmm. and, and get you started there and, you know, I can make you better. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been teaching cops. I just got back from uh, Chicago, teaching or uh, well, Illinois, mm-hmm. a little town called Rockford. We did. Uh, we're post certified there now, so nice. we can uh, we can teach the uh, the cops CQB. And I think the difference between SEAL teams and cops, you know, the big difference is we train all the time. Yeah, they don't. That's not where their yeah. money is. Their, their money is you know on the on the ground doing the job. And almost no training. Yeah, which is terrible. I've been, I've been for the past many, many years. I've been saying police should train twenty percent of the time. And if they did twenty percent of the time, you know, so it's one day a week, or maybe that's two hours a day. Like however you want to break yeah. it up, but they would be so much better. Because right now, like that group that you just trained, how much training are they getting a year in CQC? None. There you go. How much? How much? How many rounds are they shooting a year? Uh, the guys are having a you know. They get like sixty rounds paid for. I mean, that's so if they like want, if they want to, you know, get better on their own, sixty rounds. So just so everyone that's not like a person that has shot weapons before, sixty rounds a year for training is not going to make you a proficient shooter in a normal situation, in like a flat range situation. Yeah. Oh, that was just for the, for the qualification. Yeah. So that's not thinking, training. <laughs> so thinking that you're going to be, you know, have one of these, you know, we expect our police officers to be able to handle these crazy dynamics, especially right now, mm-hmm. crazy dynamic situations where things are going on. People have 
all kinds of armament. They they do crazy things. Thinking that a police officer is going to be ready for that just because they've been on the job, it just doesn't make sense. And we're really we're really failing not only failing our police officers, but we're failing our civilian populace as well because. More uh, oftentimes, the police officer that's not well trained doesn't handle the situation right, and it ends up terrible. And you can tell so clearly when a police officer is trained, they just respond infinitely better than someone that's not trained. So yeah. I'm gonna—I I don't know what else to do about that. Uh, hopefully, we continue to push that message. And and people will say, "Well, they need to be on the street, right?" No, well, they need to be out there. They need to be out there, that, so they don't have time to train. Okay, so let me ask you this. Would you rather, in your neighborhood, have ten cops that haven't trained patrolling, at, you know, at two o'clock in the morning or one or midnight or whenever? Would you rather have ten cops that have trained two hours in the last year, or would you rather have eight cops that have trained, you know, twenty percent of the time? Anybody that has any sense at all will say, "I would take the eight guys." Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. I would take two guys instead of, I would take two guys that are well-trained over six guys that aren't well-trained. The problem is that, you know, the, the guys paying for it, you know, that are in charge of the training. They're, mm-hmm. they're like, they have to have these guys on the street. You know, they got to fill that schedule. But that's what I'm saying. Somebody needs to say, hey, having an untrained person on the street is not worth that savings. They just don't. They just haven't figured this out yet, and I don't know how they haven't figured it out. Because when we do have these negative incidents happen with police officers, it's most of the time you, any common sense person with tactical training will be able to say, "Oh yeah, if this would have happened, they would have been able to do this, and the problem would have been solved." Mm-hmm. And we watch we, people like people like you and me. We watch those things, and we're like, "It's it makes me sick. It makes me cringe." Because I know twenty minutes doing de-escalation procedures would have solved this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, a half an hour on a Monday morning going through, hey, think through this problem. Let's let's walk through it a couple times. You come up in this situation. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to run up and start yelling at him. Okay, well, let's think about that. What if he doesn't respond the way you expect him to? Well, you know, most of the time when I yell at a guy, you tell him to get down, he gets down. Okay, but is that a great first move? How about we get some cover? How about we yell from behind cover? Now you got some time to react. Now you got some time for decision making. Now you've got some distance between you. Yep. So all these things that you can teach really easy and then you got to drill them. You got to drill them. But look, what I just said, you could do that for free. That doesn't cost anything. Yeah. It takes 20 minutes. Let's run through the scenario, talk through it, and then let's do it. And then you have a guy come up, come upon someone that's causing problems and instead of running up and yelling at him, hey, get down. Because like, they get trained to do that from working, right? Because most of the time when a cop yells at somebody, they go, they don't want to get arrested or they don't want to get in trouble, so they obey. It's that 1% of the time yeah. that the person's on drugs, they're going crazy, they don't care, they want to die, they want to kill. That person is the one we're worried about. The person that you yell at from behind a car and be like, hey, get down, and they get down, cool. We're all yeah. happy. When you yell from behind a car, get down, and they don't do what you want them to do, cool. Now we have other decisions that we can make. We have escalations that we can do. We're in a protected position. We don't have to freak out. We have time to react. There's all kinds of things that we can do. So those basic training protocols that aren't happening right now, that's what a lot of these problems are coming from. Very seldom do I see a, a video of a police officer that is that something has gone south where you can you say to yourself, oh, the intent of this police officer was to have this bad situation happen. No one's like, oh, their intent was to solve the problem and they did not have the tools and the training yeah. to get it done, which is a freaking nightmare.
Yeah. And I, I love t- training cops. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but honestly, as much as I can, you know, they, you know, they got to pay, um, by doing these videos for tack hive, I want to train everybody. I want to give everybody that, you know, that the situation awareness you're talking about is not that hard and you can, you can train it, you know, mm-hmm. you just, you know, distance gives you time angles gives you a way out and then just keeping your head up and on a swivel, you know? And if you can remember those three things, you know, the guy who's looking to grab you or, you know, treat you as a victim, that predator is not looking for a hard target. They're looking for the easy target. And if you're doing stuff, if you're looking around, you're not, you know, everybody's, you know, in their little private phone booth, you know, staring at, just, if you got to talk on the phone, bring it up in front of your face rather than looking down. If you do that, you're not going to have trouble most of the time mm-hmm. in those transition spaces and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, that kind of training. And then here's the next level because that firearm that, you know, you're carrying, all that does is gives you an extra option. It's not, I'm armed, so I'm going to go do, you know, I, I'm a sheepdog and I'm going to mm-hmm. involve myself. No, no. That's just, you, you have to deal with all these other, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like the escalation, yeah. de-escalation, yeah. figure that out. And if somebody pulls a gun on you and they've got a gun on you, you are not, I can't outdraw them. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got to figure something else out. You got to wait for your time, your yeah. opportunity. Yep. And you just how did you get yourself in that situation? You know what I mean. How did you get someone get close enough to you, and you were lacked situational awareness that they identified you, and that they were able to pull out a weapon without you being able to create distance and and get yourself into a survival scenario? That's just a lack of awareness, and it's a lack of training. Yep. So and and then it's the gear as well. Um, You know, these days when when COVID hit. You know, you couldn't buy a gun because they were just all sold out. You know, everybody who, who didn't have a gun went in panic, bought something. You know, there's a bunch of stories about that. It's like, oh, yeah, give me the gun show loophole. You know, how much more I got to charge for that? You know, um, and studies have shown that if that guy who bought that gun came home, put it on his coffee table and stared at it and was like and got no help from a gun guy, he's now more anti-gun than he was before. Explain that. They're afraid of it still. It's like oh. they bought a rattlesnake and brought okay. it home, and they because they, they have no idea what it is. Now it's a gun, in, and they've been told, "Oh, no, I'm twenty percent more li- or eighty percent more likely to be you know killed by a gun in my house because I have one." And so, what do they sell them? Yeah, they normally sell them or put it away or whatever. But if if that other group, same guys, you know, probably voted well for stuff like this but now they needed a gun because they you know the cops aren't going to come there to, to you know save them and their mm-hmm. toilet paper um yeah if they had somebody in their life that was a gun guy that could help them out that gets them past that first you know step okay i bought the gun now what well no get some ammo let's go to the range here's how to hold it here's you know those are those guys are now way on the other side they're on our side now you know we're um, the the armed citizen. I mean, cops can't be everywhere, mm-hmm. but armed citizens can be. Okay, we just need more of them. More guns equals less crime if you have the right people, you know, that know how to use the gun. So my latest thing, um, I uh, uh, doing TACIVE stuff. I got noticed um, by this company called Lipsies, and they do special limited edition guns and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've been talking with them about taking out the um, the roadblocks for civilian gun ownership, okay? You can't change it from the other side of the law, but on this side, guy buys a gun, okay? 
Now he wants to carry it, so he buys a holster. Well, now he wants to put a light on his gun. Ain't going to fit in that holster anymore. And it just it, it, if you're not a gun guy, mm-hmm. it's a big pain in the ass. So what we're planning on doing, I think this is going to happen oh, early next year. They're going to come out with, I think, Smith & Wesson first, um, the coach edition uh you know, uh, I think there's a couple revolvers, and then they would do some auto loaders. I don't know exactly for sure, but but what comes along with that when you buy one of these, there'll be a little code that you can go on the interwebs, and there's going to be me explaining exactly what you got in this box and how to use it, why we made the decisions on the grip and the sights and everything else, and then when you decide, you know that you wanted, you know, after you've taken it to the range and got some some rounds down and some reps, now you want to carry it. Well, there's going to be, ideally, there'll be a little drop-down menu, you know, inside the waistband, outside the waistband, red dot, light, and everything will fit together. So it kind of takes that, uh, the guesswork out of it. I mean, I got a box of freaking holsters that I don't use. Mm-hmm. Some of them I bought, some of them weren't given to me, right? Yeah. But I, if you're not a gun guy, you know, it's just that much more of a pain in the ass to to deal with, right? And if you can just buy it in a package and then have somebody teach you how to use it, you know, and in person is always better. Yep. But if you can go over, okay, this is how you stand, and this is why, and here's where your natural point of aim is, and try these drills. And, you know, I think that's going to be the best way for me to uh, to expand this mm-hmm. and and get the. Uh, I want people, Americans, to be able to defend themselves because yeah. cops can't be everywhere, and yeah. you know, don't be so, uh, afraid of the uh, equipment. You know, know how to use it, and it takes the fear out of it. Well, now we're going to have to make a uh, nine millimeter. Colt freaking AR based <laughs> freaking submachine gun for the house home defense. That's what's coming next. <laughs> yeah, they're actually, um, yeah. Well, through this company, the Lipsies, they, they they can work with anybody, mm-hmm. anybody in the gun industry. So yeah, we'll be pushing something like that. Um, and yeah, coach branded. I mean, I had to come up with a color and a logo and all this stuff. I was like, oh, really, man? God. <laughs> Yeah, I I never wanted this, you know. Um, Hopefully, it's just a big smiling dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, when when Tack Hive when it started, um, my buddy Dor, he uh, he was still active duty, mm-hmm. so he came to me. He was like, "Hey, uh, Coach, I, I got this opportunity to like do this, you know, video channel stuff, you, 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 but I can't be on camera. You want to help me out?" I said, "No." <laughs> the last thing I wanted to be was that guy in front of the camera. Um, it's like, oh no, it's really easy, man. Just, just you're know, basically gonna teach a class to this little, you know, uh, Asian guy and his uh, little Filipino guy and his brother. You know, I'm like, and his videographer is gonna, you know, shoot it. I'm like, video? Who's got a fucking video? He's got a videographer. Um, but anyway, so we did that and did a couple of them as his journey because he wanted to. He was a big BJJ guy, uh-huh. and uh, he he realized that if somebody shows up with a gun. Okay, he didn't know what to do, so yep. he wanted to find out. BJJ he, is ineffective in that scenario. Yeah, against <laughs> against firearms, it's uh, yeah has its limits. Um, I, I love jujitsu, <laughs> but yeah. it doesn't work against a gun very well. So that was it. He wanted someone to film his journey, and then you know, so we did a couple of those, and then I they found out I had all this gear because when I when you you know you improve your gear. Mm-hmm. You get new stuff. I would just take the old stuff off, throw it in a bag, 
and in my garage. Mm-hmm. So I basically have like gear history from you yeah. know the late '80s through the early 2000s. And Dor's kind of the same guy as me. He's got everything from you know the, the you know late '90s, early 2000s, all the way out to uh, you know he retired last year. So he's got all the all that cool kit. And dude, those videos get a lot of hits because people love gear. Yeah, they do. Um, but yeah, so that gave me that. You know, we do training videos, we do uh, gear reviews and uh, firearm review, reviews, and uh, and basically gear history. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a big problem with YouTube. Um, they uh, they hate guns. Uh, yeah. So we've got like over four hundred thousand subscribers. We get fewer hits now than when we had less than a hundred thousand. <laughs> so doesn't make any sense so we're struggling with that at the moment but yeah. um well they, they, you probably just aren't getting into the algorithm yeah there's there's something man do you I'm, like your do you do do you do any pure gear videos where you're just talking about like i saw one of your videos was like about cold cold weather you know the, yeah. P, the pcu does that get more because it's just getting the algorithm or anything you know we did we did retro um like training techniques mm-hmm. And we do it with a 45, and it got like 400,000 views in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I was like, cool. So we did like a bunch more. And they got almost nothing, got like 20, 30,000 here. And they're like, okay, that's nowhere near what this mm-hmm. one did. So whether that's algorithm, whether it's, uh, you know, just the fickle nature of uh, yeah. the audience, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. I don't even think about that stuff because. I think it's uh, too hard to comp- comprehend what's going down. Do you think about that stuff, K Doc? Yeah, absolutely. Is there? Can you make sense of it? Um, so there are strategies to improve how your videos perform on YouTube for sure. Mm-hmm. A lot of that has to do with what people initially see, how that first pool of people react the to it. Clickbait, hundred percent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is is it an engaging title of the video? What's the description like? What's your thumbnail image look like? All these things that contribute to whether or not somebody's going to click on that thing in the first place and start watching it. Then how long they watch it, all that contributes Mm. to how it factors into the algorithm and then how it's delivered to a wider audience based on the engagement it's getting. So there's a lot of strategic (laughs) stuff going on. Just make cool videos. That's my recommendation. Make cool videos, 100%. That's what we're trying to do. Put out good information, you know? Help people. Yeah. And then, you know, then nobody looks at your backlog. It's like, you know, you... I'm like, okay, we got a thousand videos because I'm 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 not an owner of the that website. Mm-hmm. I'm just a subject matter expert that's been there for four years now, mm-hmm. from the beginning. Um, you know, and since then, I have I, this whole electronic realm, you know, come up. I'm like, all right, so uh, pr- uh, practical firearms instruction. That's my website. If you want to come train with me, you go there. And then what I, is it? Practical practical firearms, firearms instruction. Instru- P- PFI. Yeah. PracticalFirearmsInstruction.com. Maybe she should shorten that to just PFI.com. You won't be able to uh, get that. Somebody already owns PFI. Somebody, yeah, probably. They try to charge you $5 million <laughs> to get PFI.com. That much I do know. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of branching out. My wife's like, no, you should do your own videos. I'm like, okay. So she just made me a YouTube channel. So PFI Coach on youtube okay. is gonna be that'll be me there's no videos there right yeah on, you can man. look there now there's there's nothing but it's like we're just uh we'll start well, filling stuff out let me tell you 
you better get some up. <laughs> it, it's Coach C O C H, right? Yeah, C O C H. And the reason I did that is because if you know you, you write it like a coach, you know C O A C H. Then when they write out my whole name, it's Coachiolo. Oh, it's like no, I'm not. No, just C O C H. Plus, I could trademark that one. C O C H is tra- trademarked to me. Yeah, there you go. And you know, just it was part of this whole deal. It's like, oh, we're gonna put Coach on a gun. So okay, better yeah. get that trademarked. And, right on. You know, and I, I got ideas all the time. So I'm thinking about a, a smartwatch uh, band. So, you know, commando bands. I got a trademark on that one. We'll see what. Yeah. How that I, I want one. I'm I don't really know what it does, but like I'm, I'm in down. the game. Let's get that commando band rolling. <laughs> and that nine mil AR platform. Yeah. yeah. See, that's there you go. Story, man. People are going to be hype on that one. <laughs> like, you know, I get uh, my algorithm will have all kinds of shooting stuff in there. And, and I don't see that very often. People recommending a like a submachine gun for home defense, and I think it's a great solution. Well, effectively, it's not a submachine gun because yeah. it's just going to be semi-auto. Yeah. Okay, so you know, it's not a machine oh, gun. So okay, what, what's the proper terminology then? A uh, semi-automatic a pistol caliber carbine is what they're. That's okay. the new. Right thing on, so right the, the PCC the PCC so, yeah the you, good thing for the home defense yeah I mean it, it all basic it's gonna save your ears mm-hmm. you know when it comes down to it um, and you now it's we'll figure it all out I mean I you know people are coming in my, my brother who's on forging fire and he made some cool knives he's been on it three times oh really we're wow. like gonna do a collaboration knife but you know he's he's an artist so he's up making swords in uh, in Oregon <laughs> I just gotta get up there we got the, the initial design it's been sent out for years I'm like come on we need to do this thing right no I got I've seen like advertisements for that and just dudes out there just hammering oh, metal right making cool stuff so n- Nick yeah, my brother. Is your brother? Yeah, he's the only one. He's the one next to me, uh, next down from me. Uh-huh. All right, so he's two years younger than me. But to this day, he's the his sword is the only one that's cleaved a pig in one go. This yeah. big, you know, big nodachi, you know, armor splitting, <laughs> you know, katana, you know, samurai sword, and it just hacked it. Shoom, boom, and I'm like. Cool. Does he do the whole process, like folding the metal over yep. ten thousand times or whatever? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, he could tell you all about it. But yeah, it's, yeah, he heats the stuff. What He's, does he do for a living? That's what he does for a living. Like, now. but, but you can't just be on that show for a living. You got to. Oh no, 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 not okay. So, uh, at the time, he was uh, he was a, a steady cam operator. Okay. And when COVID came around, it killed that. So he's unemployed from that. Yep. But by then, he had been, you know, the Society for Creative Anachronism. They basically a bunch of guys that dress in armor and beat, beat on each other with sticks in tournaments. Oh, oh, yeah. It's it's pretty cool. It's live steel and everything else. But yeah. So he, you Speaking know, of Gardner, like, you know, yeah. out in Potrero. Have you seen that stuff? <laughs> yeah, the Potrero Roar, War. Yeah, yeah, my brother came down for that one. Yeah, they go out there and it's just like dudes in freaking yeah. armor, rednecks in <laughs> armor, just getting after it, beating the shit out of each yeah. other. Well, Nick didn't have a lot of money to buy the armor, so he's started making his own mm-hmm. and then it, that branched off into making swords and now he makes just absolutely beautiful works of art you know um, and he's selling them and that's how he makes yeah, his yeah he's making right his now. his living is uh is selling you know belt jewelry basically yeah. to uh people because they're way too nice to but go you know fighting dude with. people are like you know he's out in the bar and 
the girl's like, so what do you do? And he's like, I'm a freaking sword maker, <laughs> what? <laughs> he's like, yeah. what up? Yeah. And she's either like, I want to marry you or like, get away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sicko. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he's good to go. He's married. He's got uh, his whole business. His, you know, he moved it all up there and he's got a big shop and 16 ton press where he just, you know, he heats the stuff and he's on Facebook, uh, uh, Nick Cochillo, Nicholas Cochillo. I'm not sure. Look him up. Look him up. <laughs> Check. But yeah, so we're, we've been talking about doing this collaboration with him, and it's just, you know, it, it takes some time. You know, just before he moved to Oregon and yeah. everything else, you know. Home defense apart. katana. <laughs> Home <laughs> defense katana. Kills yeah. pigs when was the last time? Swap. Swipe. Run through. You know, <laughs> how do you, on the corner, yeah, he was run through. <laughs> Not gunshot wounds. Yeah. Check. Um, Where were you on September 11th? Um, I was at, uh, at Damneck mm-hmm. and, uh, we had the, um, we had a three letter agency that was there with us training. Um, and we were in the, um, uh, in the high bay and, uh, it was, we didn't know when the first plane hit, but when the second one did, they came in and said, Hey guys, you got to look at this. So we came in and we, you know, they replayed it a bunch and, uh, these guys, they packed up and headed back to Washington and, uh. They were actually on their way when the plane hit the uh, the Pentagon. Damn. Um, yeah. So we we just basically sat around watching the TV in the team room, going. Mm-hmm. Okay, I called the wife. And said, uh, things are uh, gonna change. Yeah. We had no idea. And actually, uh, uh, my particular group, um, we didn't go to Afghanistan first we went to Bosnia one more time because mm. they didn't know mm-hmm. they didn't know where things were going to go so they sent us over there because there was some rumblings or whatever so that was the first place we deployed to for uh, well, a month or two mm-hmm. and then uh, came back from that and we were the second group over in, uh, into Afghanistan and we did our, our three month deployment doing uh, high value or high value targets mm-hmm. it was, was basically we were focused on so Elvis sightings and you know whatever um, Elvis sightings yeah <laughs> the intel was was you know yeah. sketchy at yeah. the time so you you're know. just like spinning up looking spinning up looking yep ready to go flying off hitting a place you know and um, you know of course a bunch of dry holes mm-hmm. you know because we didn't get him or didn't you know they, yep. and they didn't have the whole hierarchy of uh, you know the bad guys yet um, and it was on one of those um, it was actually the last, the last mission that we're doing in that three months. Um, they advertised a, uh, TF-160, awesome guys, but they're like, oh yeah, 20 foot rope, man, we'll put you right in there. Okay, cool. Check. So I didn't have my big gloves on, my sexy shooting gloves on. And that turned into a big fiasco. Um, they pulled up short. I was in dash three, dash one pulls up short, dash two damages his airplane missing him because we were like 800 yards short of the actual target and what he thought was whatever mm-hmm. he stopped here anyway all those guys they did a crash landing you know yeah this dash was, two does a crash landing. dash two ta- crash did landing. dash one put its guys out yep okay they're into a target that's 800 yards 800, short, 800 meters, meters short, short of the actual target okay. And apparently it looked similar for, I yeah. don't know exactly what the dish, the deal was, but it's called I mean, Murphy's law. Yo. Yeah. <laughs> it's called oh, in hot. It, yeah. It's nuts. All right. So we got guys on the wrong target, guys in the wrong target, crashed bird, 
and the bird's going down. Guys are like, you know, un, undone, ready to go, rope in hand, and watching the, you know, canyon walls go flitting by in their little, you know, green toilet paper tubes. And then uh, it, that pilot found the only place in a square mile that he could put down a, a, an H-60. And, uh, you know, when, when the 60s uh, rotors are turning, they're nice and flat. As they slow down, they dip a little bit. And when they dip, they start hitting boulders and they just busted them all up. So they're dealing with that. We watch uh, Dash 1 puts out their stuff. I'm the last guy off of Dash 3, the last bird. And then we had a 47. We are, the, the idea was they were going to come in and we're get a foothold, you know, control it, and then bring in the main force mm-hmm. with the 47. Anyway, so I'm looking at this thing, and I'm going, this does not look like the pictures, you know. And I look down, and it's a 100-foot rope, and there's maybe 20 feet <laughs> on the deck. And, you know, and the last time I looked down there, uh, the rope was going right to the center of that, of this little square on the roof. Mm-hmm. So I zip on there, you know, and zzz, hot, hot, hot. You know, and I hit the ground, I throw the rope away. And as I'm reaching for my weapon, I step back. Well, I thought I was in the middle. Mm-hmm. It turns out uh, my heels were right on the edge of the roof. So when I stepped back, I stepped back into nothing. And I know the last thing that goes through your head before you die, because that was that. I mean, and it was like, I was just really disappointed. Like, I was like, so fuck. They're gonna, everyone's gonna think I'm a jackass. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, bing, 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 things start happening, um, and then and it stops. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm not dead, <laughs> you know? And uh, apparently, um, had I fallen off of uh, two sides, I would have gone one story down. Where I fell off, I fell two stories, but I hit the edge of the first story on the way down and spun me around and threw my gear all over the place. That other edge, it was about at least 100 feet before there was anything that would stop me. So there's your frogman luck, right? You know, we'll take it. not good enough to, to not get hurt, but uh, good enough not to die. So I'm laying on my back. Uh, when I hit, my camelback burst. So the guys look down, and they see me laying there in a spreading pool of black liquid, and they're like, okay, coach is dead. Yeah, How do we get off next. this thing? <laughs> <laughs> so I get my crap back together. I'm, I'm you know, uh, there's an animal pen next to me, and whatever's in there is, like, you know, really pissed off. I'm like, oh, crap, this cow's going to come out and stomp me. It's made of sticks, you know. Was, and I'm laying in front of a big, uncleared breezeway on, on this you know made of boulders and and timber i'm like okay i can't stay here and wait for the backboard so i did a quick systems check and i got my shit together and made my way over so i could look up on the roof and make comms with the the, the comm guy up there and say hey look I'm, I'm i'm good got my you know nods back on but i i can't move my my leg is jacked up my back feels like it, there's someone poking me i actually looked behind me <laughs> like ow what okay no one's poking me and and my shoulder was jacked up as well and my face because when i fell on that the, my nods tried to mm-hmm. poke my eyes out but for some reason you know because i i want to be able to see so I, I would always wear clear eye pro under my nods which wasn't a common practice mm-hmm. but because i had those oakley's on uh, i'm still able to see with two eyes because yeah. it would have poked them right out um anyway so we, they finished clearing down and you know it, Pretty much everybody on target was uh, right inside that breezeway. <laughs> but luckily, they were just non-combatants, so we were on the wrong damn target. Yeah. Um, so they medevaced me the next morning, and 
uh, that was the last mission. So then a couple days, I was back in the in the states, and they had to do a, they cut a big uh, meatball off of my leg, big hematoma, mm. and then uh, my shoulder didn't want to work. It would just impinge. It would come up here and just stop. I'm like, okay, what's up with that? And so they examine it, says slap tear and some other stuff going on in there. We're going to have to operate. We just found out that we're going to be the guys going into uh, Iraq mm-hmm. in the invasion. Yeah. I'm like, ain't no operation. I am not for that. No, ain't going to happen. So I said, what else can we do? And what he did is he gave me, uh, the doc gave me a, a shot in my arm, cortisone or some magic liquid. But immediately it was like, ooh. Not and impinged anymore. <laughs> yeah, we are good. He's like, okay, I gave you that one so you can train. We'll give you another one right before you go out the door. But when you come back, we have to operate because mm-hmm. you don't get you know, two is all you get on that one. And I'm like, okay. So that w- allowed me to stay with the team mm-hmm. and uh, and roll over and uh, and do our uh, invasion stuff. And you got there. When did you get there? Like for the war to kick off? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we were, okay, so everybody, all the, the conventional forces were down south, mm-hmm. and we were way up north in Saudi Arabia, the northern Saudi Arabia. So while everybody was rolling up, we were doing these deep penetrating missions mm-hmm. to the WMD sites that, you know, Intel said might have yep. this, that, or whatever. And we were hanging out pretty far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it would have been, had had a helo gone down, it had been days yeah. before anybody could have got to us, not in a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, we had one real close call. Uh, we all got shot up pretty good. We were in 47s. Mm-hmm. And this little town, we came in, and I was in dash one, and we, I think we took half a dozen rounds mm-hmm. through the fuselage. Um, but then dash two came in that same track, and they got all, <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the air crew got actually shot in the head. He survived, mm-hmm. but, you know. Um, all our guys were clean. Um, and so we went and did the w- WMD. You know, we took down the outside. That was just mop level four. Well, we weren't. We had the mop suits, but, you know, dash one, mm-hmm. where I was, uh, we were securing the outside area. Uh-huh. And then dash two was going to roll in. They were mopped They were all mopped up. And they, you know, they were like sitting there just watching the light show as the rounds <laughs> came through the fuselage. Like, how are we not dead? Um my my bird, uh, the the hydraulics got hit on the uh, the door, and uh, so you know how that ramp comes down and goes, mm-hmm. yeah, it went bang, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody they were running off, and the guy in front of me slips and falls on his ass, and and you know scoots off, and Mike laughing at him as I slip on my ass and scoot off the hydraulic ramp. fluid everywhere, hydraulic fluid everywhere, like you know scooting like a dog with worms, um, and then yeah we went went and ran did our did the whole deal, no problems. Well, that bird couldn't come back because the hydraulic fluid, it couldn't you know, fix it. They had to just get it out of there. And then the second bird had the injured guy on it and was all shot up. And so they went back out to the desert. We had a flying spare and a QRF, two other 47s with us. Mm-hmm. So after we ran around, and, and this is so so deep in there, our, our time was limited on, on fuel. Mm-hmm. So we had to do what we did. Turned out it was it was a dry hole. Well, yeah, thank God. 
Uh, and then we piled back in, you know, and we were able to get everybody on that flying spare and, you know, nut to butt on the, uh, <laughs> uh, with the QRF, Pack you know, cause they, they, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, so there's this, um, uh, 47s have the two counter rotating, uh, props, right. And there's a drive shaft that goes between, and then there's a cover that goes over that. Well, there was a big dent. <laughs> In that one on my bird. Uh, and if you were, had it hit and gone in and messed with that drive shaft, then the, that's what keeps the rotors working together. Uh-huh. And they would just ate each other and would have fallen out of the sky. And it would have been a really, really long night for, well, probably somebody else. But um, yeah, as it was, you know, we had a bunch of little close calls like mm-hmm. that, um, hitting a bunch of different targets, you know. Um, tracers of big guns and aircraft stuff going between the rotor disc and the fuselage of the bird you know <laughs> bro i've had some uh i've had some huey vietnam pilots on here both the sea wolves and then just regular army conventional like uh air assault guys and man what they did with those hueys is did they drove things like they were bumper cars at the freaking uh fair mm-hmm. like they're going into LZs, fire everywhere, taking hits all over the place, just going in. They're, they don't give a shit, man. Yeah. There was three. There was five thousand Hueys sent to Vietnam. Three thousand two hundred of them were lost in combat. Damn, That's, those guys were getting next after level, it. man. Yeah. And and I'll tell you what's awesome. The Sea Wolf guys. Well, the Sea Wolf guys. When you talk to the seals, and I've had some, you know, the, the Vietnam seals that that have come on here. Dude, those Sea Wolf guys were coming, like yeah. they were coming, and they didn't care. And like they, we had one guy out here telling a story, they they just stayed like, oh, we're running out of fuel. Cool, they just ran out of fuel and landed in a freaking rice paddy and used ammo ammo cans to transfer fuel from another bird that they brought in <laughs> into the bird. Like these guys were just freaking legit, yeah. man, making shit happen. But those birds too. I think because they were less technologically uh, uh, reliant, they were just more durable. You know, it's like yeah. it's like having like a, a brand new freaking BMW right now versus having like a 1967 freaking. I don't know, man. Those uh, Blackhawks are pretty resilient too. My my oldest brother is a helicopter oh, pilot okay. for uh, yeah. Army, and uh, he was actually spent a year in Afghanistan doing dust off stuff. So it's like, you know, whenever there was a tick. He was on his way, Coming in. you know. Yeah, he went to pretty much all of them, um, and I mean, he had uh, a uh, a hot LZ mm-hmm. and uh, ground force commander saying, "Hey, we got guys down here wounded. We need to get you down here. We need to get them out of here." And uh, so he disobeyed army doctrine, didn't wait for the gunship because the gunship couldn't make it, you know, as fast as he could. He got there. He looks around and goes, "Okay." And there's no traces over there. I think I can get in. So he came in hot. Hell yeah! And got lit up. Um, and as he's coming in, the you know the army birds have the 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 wheel is way up on the tail. Navy birds is like halfway Tucker. up because you don't have to you know turn them on uh, aircraft carriers. Yeah. So anyway, you can hit the ground pretty hard with that sucker because it'll it'll save the, the little shock absorber, right? So he had to come in hot. Well, when they laid out the DZ, they laid it out at an angle. It was on angled turf. Mm-hmm. So when he hit that hard, it slammed his head into the uh, into the canopy, knocked him unconscious. Okay. <laughs> when he came to, it was probably just a couple of seconds, mm-hmm. but hey, you know, um, didn't know he was in Afghanistan 
didn't, you know, it was like, you know, you just kind of, you know, as the system like reboots, um, and he's like, okay, you know, boom, all right, we're good. But the, the bird didn't roll over, didn't ball up. They loaded a bunch of guys, uh, on there and flew out again with, you know, couldn't wait for the gunships at this point because mm-hmm. they'd squirt the ground in front normally and then you fly out. And so he flies out and, um, got everybody back to base. But uh, when he got there, everybody was dead. Every, you know, and so they went from, you know, he was things when you disobey army doctrine, mm-hmm. two things will happen. They give you a medal or they prosecute you. Mm-hmm. And, um, he would have, he would have had uh, another air medal for that one, but because you know, guys got hit on the way out and, and died, he's, he knew it, at least one guy back there was, had jumped on to, to do CPR and, uh, yeah, he got hit and, uh, and expired on the five minute meal you know, flight home. So instead of prosecution, they just called it even, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you, you tried, you didn't, yeah, had, had there been some success there, apparently. And I'm probably screwing the story up a little bit, yeah. but, uh, I mean, he, it broke his neck, um, on the, you know, so he, had, and then he just kind of, you know, <laughs> dealt with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he, he actually, like last year, just got it all cleaned out. They had to go in there and fuse his neck and take out, you know, the, the disc yeah. that was pressing on stuff cause he was going numb and. You know, but yeah, again, the, the, he was taught by the, you know, army yeah. Vietnam, you know, Hilo pilots Badass back in the day. And, and, and he grew up on, uh, on Huey's. That was his first, uh, platform. <laughs> so that'd be interesting. You have to ask him which one is more, which yeah. one would, which one would do better going into a hot LZ. I mean, I get I'm I it has to be the Blackhawk, but then again, too, those Hueys, man, they're little and probably like you can yeah. get in there quick. And but then again, the Black Hawk has better armor on like critical components. Yeah, like the 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 pilot. Has yeah, that, that, the pilot the titanium seat. Yeah, that, and like yeah. the brains of the. I'm sure the brains of a Black Hawk are and the critical components of a Black Hawk. I bet you they have better armor and some redundancy as well. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, but so. anyway, that's. I do. know I was talking to on this podcast. I was talking to a Huey pilot. And he was like, "Yeah, you know, the thing is, our birds only cost like two hundred thousand dollars." He's like, "Those Blackhawks, they must cost like a million dollars." I was like, "They cost like twenty, <laughs> yeah. twenty something million dollars." <laughs> yeah. So that's why when one of those things goes down, people freak out. Yeah. They were just, you know, just go karts with the freaking uh, the Hueys. Uh, did you? Did you? You must have been on the Jessica Lynch then too, if you were there. Yeah, with that crew. Yeah, how'd that go down? Um, that was. We got uh, intel. We were working on, you know, a target, you know, that we're going to hit that night. This comes in and goes, okay, we'll put that on, on hold. And they flew us from where we were to a, a forward operating base. And we sat there and got intel. There was like, you know, they'd found, you know, that the certain three-letter agencies had contacts with you know, locals and they'd gone in and sent them in with, uh, rigged with cameras so they could, uh, you know, identify the last guy they sent in rolled up there and, you know, walked up the stairs, top of the stairs, a big bust of, uh, Saddam and gold. And he turned right and went down four, four doors and pff, there she was. Mm-hmm. We're like, all right, proof of life, man, we are going. So, um, we got all set up and, uh, they had, uh, the ground assault force, it was going to take them like two hours to get there, you know, through barrack, you know, uh, all that stuff. And 99 Rangers and some snipers and some some of our guys. And initially, we were supposed to be on the gaff. And uh, last minute, they uh, 
Oh, well, we've got an extra 60. All right, cool. So we all got on that one, and we'd just been shot up, you know, on the 47 a couple of nights before. So with this one, the doors are open. You're like, all right, I can shoot back now because that's the big thing about a 47. It's like yeah. you just got to sit there and take it, you know. But now it's like, no, nah, okay, I got guns up. Plate press forward. We're fucking, you know, we're gonna get Feels this. Feels good, anyways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, as we were getting on, we were like sitting us, you know, if, if if we die tonight, that's uh, it's worth it. Yeah, you know, because you just you know, there's an American out there, and um, you know, she'd been reported as as fighting to the last round, and you know, none of that really came through. But you know, mm. whatever, she was in a car crash and yeah. it messed her up really bad. Yeah. And they, they never claimed that they had her. You know, they, you know, she, she was a prisoner of war, but yeah, they had this cute little blonde girl that they, uh, you know, whatever the hell Iraqis are going to do. Anyway, so we roll in there, and as we're flying in, we're, we had coordinated with the Marines at the, uh, at the bridge, it was a bridge just outside of town, and they were going to do a little salt there. So uh, that was going on. We coordinated with them as like a, you know, decoy. And as we're flying in, I look over there and you see just these tracers doing this, you know, going you know, towards each other. And uh, we get the, DC's clear. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Can somebody tell them? <laughs> but that was at the bridge. I was like, uh, you know, almost a mile away, I think. Um, and they rolled in. Uh, the initial breach team dropped in on the little birds and they put snipers on the roof. This is a seven-story hospital. And we came in, landed in the uh, driveway courtyard thing behind a wall um, and just ran up there. And as I'm running through this, I'm like, hey, I've seen this on TV. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly awesome. the same. And we get up there and turn right and clear down. And there's the room she's supposed to be in. She's not there. I'm like, oh, crap. Not a dry hole. Come on. So we finished clearing that wing. And, you know, then there's our shitters at the end there. I like, busted all that out and, you know, looked. Nothing. And so as we're, all right, clear the other way, because the, um, the staircase came up like in the middle of the wing. So you had that one side, then the other, right? So as he came back, they're bringing up this doctor who spoke English. He's like, oh, Jesse, yeah, I'll take you see Jesse, no problem, blah, 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 you know? And so one of our guys had him by the scruff of the neck with a pistol in the back of his head, and I was left, left side point man. And there was all these big windows all the way down. And I really, really, really wanted to, like, check my six. But that wasn't my job, you know. So I'm like, boom, you know, set it forward and going, okay, relying on your uh, your number two. And we get there, door was open, threw the doctor in, just in case anybody wanted to be shooting, they'd shoot him. Um, and then we entered like normal, mm-hmm. um, clear, no problems. And then uh, she'd been, like, laid down on the bed and uh, – she kind of sat up and I was right at the foot of the bed. I'm like, Jessica, Jessica Lynch. And she looked at me with the biggest, scaredest eyes I've ever seen on a human. And she was scared of me. And that like took me, I was like, oh shit, you know? And I said her name a couple of times. She was just non-responsive, just scared as hell. More guys were coming in and I hadn't shot anybody yet. So I, I left, I got back out in the hallway, figured, you know, that was my best chance of getting that fight. Anyway, so got to the other end, ended up in the shitter again, same shitter on the other end, right? <laughs> Cleared that and that's, we got thin. And uh, so I held there and uh, they, they, brought the the medical bird in brought the dock up packaged her up and flew her out Mm -hmm. and um, we found her in six minutes and she was flying away in 16 minutes freaking awesome yeah it was it was good 
Um, and then when we back cleared down, cleared the, uh, the, the lobby was full of uh, civilians and, and then the, the, um, the basement. Basically, there was a big sand table down there. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, well, there had been 300 Saddam, Fedayeen, mm-hmm. you know, resistant, whatever the hell, you know, bad guys mm-hmm. that went to go fight the Marines at the bridge. Damn. Had that not happened, yeah, it would have been night. a different story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn. But, Freaking awesome. And then, so what happened after that? We wrapped up that deployment? Yeah, um, we, we hit a, a bunch of other places, you know, w- looking for WMD. Uh, uh, we hit Abu Ghraib looking for uh, Spiker. Um, you know, he, he was still missing at the time. Um, so we did a lot of that kind of stuff uh, and then came home. Mm-hmm. And um, when I came home, that's when uh, I had to make some decisions because I w- I'd been, I was banged up. I was in bad shape. Uh, you know, my, my shoulders were all frozen, and this one needed an operation. And I, I knew I was going to have to go under the knife. And I was at 18 years. I've been, you know, and I was like, well, if, I, if I'm going to retire at 20, I don't want to retire in the East Coast. I mean, if you like the East Coast, great, but I'm a West Coast guy, so I wanted to find a job out here. Mm-hmm. So we made the deal, and I came to work at Warcom. Um, Say goodbye to everybody. Sold the house. You know, I, my, I've been married to my uh, my wife uh, about six years at that point, and um, yeah, packed up everything and, and came out here and got a job at Warcom, mm-hmm. testing guns and ammo and um, you know uh, scopes and stuff. Yeah, you know, which cool is stuff. it was good. Yeah, um, you know, I got to be part of the SCAR program and you know help develop that, which was which was awesome. Um, and you know, just kind of. What was your role in the SCAR? I was the Naval Special Warfare representative for the SCAR program. How many representatives were there? Well, was there one from every special <laughs> operations unit? Yeah, yeah, and then you, you had the, the the Marines were just observing, mm-hmm. and so you had the, the uh, Army uh, Special Forces Rangers, uh, Air Force. Um, you know, they were all part of this thing because they're all part of SOCOM, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so everybody put their, their two cents in and I'm actually, you know, kind of responsible that there was a scar heavy because the scar light was supposed to replace the M4. Mm-hmm. And normally what you do is you take the, you know, you, you show up with all these different guns and you narrow them down to the best two, the closest two. And then you take that and there's money involved in there where you test those against each other. Well, the SCAR, the FN model, was the only one that didn't have a buffer tube. And as you know, water doesn't compress. Mm-hmm. So if it's full of water and we're shooting from the uh, the water line, the gun's either going to give you one shot or it's going to blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. So I said, guys, you know, rather than, you know, if we can just do this, you know, one, because the, um, the program manager had heard me talk and he's like, hey, if we, we can narrow this down to one, then we can move on to the next phase, which was the 7.62 version, mm-hmm. right? And I got agreement, and we... Uh, so basically the fact that they all had buffer tubes just eliminated every other yep, rifle. Every other one had a, had a buffer tube on it, and you know, I was like, well, that's not gonna work for, for us. It's not optimal for us. Right. This would be better. Um, and so they, they took that money and they put it into the next phase and then it was up and running 
when they closed down the uh, the, the scar light because it didn't make a, enough of a uh, of a leap forward but because the 762 version was much better than the m14 Got it. they were like oh okay so we so the scar one. so the scar light doesn't exist right now hey i think you can buy one on the civilian market mm-hmm. but nobody yeah i mean and it that's because it didn't have much enough advantages over the m4 yeah that they were just like, well, we're not going to change everything yeah, for this. It was too much to, to change. I mean, yeah, the, the thing about the scar. How'd you like it? Oh, I, I thought it's a great gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did as much as we could. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only so much, so, so much, so much you can do in, in uh, testing. Mm-hmm. You know, and we tested the hell out of it. Uh, and we identified issues and we corrected those issues. You know, so it was, it was a good platform. Um, when it got downrange, um, one of the biggest hiccups in, in, in when you field something is that new equipment training. And uh, so when the Belgians put this new space aged, uh, you know, polymer coating on there that would last, you know, shelf life of 10 years, but you got to clean it really good before you shoot it the first time. And, you know, frogmen, <laughs> they looked at it and went, oh, cause it's not like Cosmoline. It's yeah. not like this big gooey yeah, stuff. Yeah. So they looked at it and went, ah, oh, it looks clean. And they took it out and they shot it. And that stuff turns to shellac. And it causes malfunctions, and that was the big thing right out of the base. This thing's a that piece was of scar heavy too. That was a scar heavy, yeah. Because okay. that's the one that actually that's made it to our guys. It. Yeah, um, but I mean, a lot of that's been fixed. I mean, the, you know, the, the scars. It's it's a good solid gun. Um, yeah, uh, I guess the new Sig M7 or whatever mm-hmm. that's gonna that's kind of gonna take its place. I guess I don't know. I'm I'm so far out of the. Yeah. Uh, the loop at this point we did the best we could at the time and you know we made a, a less than eight pound gun that was modern 762 and uh and we really didn't have that you know at the time there was the sr25 the mark 11s mm-hmm. but they weren't uh, they weren't everywhere this is just you know going to be the every man's gun then so you do this kind of acquisitions and weapons testing and all that. And that was a big deal. I mean, that freaking scar was like, you'd yeah. hear about it every, it seemed like every day we'd hear about what was happening with the scar. Cause everyone's freaking got their, you don't want to talk about two cents, man. <laughs> we'd had billions of dollars if we, if we could have collected everyone's two cents. <laughs> yeah. It was coming in. Yeah. Up, and, down and across. And we were just doing what we could with, uh, you know, working within, you know, uh, corporations as well as the, mm-hmm. the big Navy machine, SOCOM machine, you know, getting money, testing, whatever. <laughs> What's the like efficiency level of the bureaucracy of that? Oh. <laughs> well, you know, now having seen a little bit in the private sector, it's actually pretty good okay. <laughs> because you still have that military, you know, protocol stuff, mm-hmm. whereas in the private sector, you, you don't have that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you never know. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was frustrating to me coming from, you know, uh, the command, where mm-hmm. you just think something up, go, hey, let's buy five happen. of them, see yeah. what happens, you know, and you know, cots, commercial off the shelf. Yeah. Just buy what's, what exists now, maybe talk to the guy, modify it a little bit, and yeah. then let's take it to work and see what happens. But that's that's not the way it's uh, it's done at the, um, mm-hmm. the Navy level. Yeah, definitely not at the giant, like, force-wide systems level. Because mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff that we were able to get away with cots for a while, and then you got to get caught up. You got to get something that's going to work for everybody, and it's going to be integrate with everybody. So yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And which which makes sense. It does I mean, make sense. It does. You know, make everybody's got to be able to talk to each other. Get getting spare parts, yeah. and okay, yeah. That's but that's not where I was. I was the guy at you know rubber meets the road. Let's mm-hmm. go do this. You know, 
Um, I, I explosively tested uh, Humvee armor, and that oh, saved right saved some guys' lives. Oh, yeah. So um, you know, that, I was you know, it was a good place for me be, to be for me to be at the time because I was a physical wreck. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I tell guys now, it's like, hey, you know, when you're an asset to your team, you know stick it out, man, you know, be an asset. When you can't be an asset and you start being more of a liability, it's time to move on. And that was what really sent me from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, otherwise I'd have spent more time uh, at mm-hmm. the command. Mm-hmm. I just would have. Um, but that, that wasn't in the cards because I was, my knees were starting to, all this stuff was just starting to just show up, you know? Yeah. And um, it's showing up uninvited. Oh, dude, yeah. <laughs> Um, but right as I retired, I would skip ahead just a little bit. Uh-huh. To, as I retired, I uh, met this guy named Joe Hippensteel, Ultimate Human Performance. And he basically showed me how to mobilize mm-hmm. again, you know, to open all this up, you know. And uh, I, I spent a year working with him. Uh, and I got, and he was paid for by the, uh, I think the, the Navy SEAL Foundation or somebody had, you know, and I was like, no, dude, this is, this is awesome. And, and uh, got everything opened up again. I could stand, like, I'd been working with the regular PT for like six mm-hmm. months and no improvement. And 30 minutes of working with Joe, I was like, I walked out of there going, holy crap. I got all this extra room what in my shoulders. Well, different, it stretches, mm-hmm. okay? And he's kind of unorthodox, but man, you feel it. Was it like, okay. have you heard of active release therapy? Was it that kind of thing? It's, yeah, he does He does that where it's like, you know, you, you find that, that spot that's hot and you press on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your pain scale is, you know, one to ten, mm-hmm. ten being the worst and one being nothing. You go to like a six or a seven, you mm-hmm. can press to an eight, you know, and as you press on it, you it feels like you're, he's letting up, but he's not. The muscles just kind of, it'll flutter and just, just kind of lets go. And it's like, okay. And, you know, and then just through the stretching and opening that up and getting that new blood in there, and that, that changed mm-hmm. everything for me. Um, and then I started, I'd been doing kettlebells prior to a lot of good functional strength there, but I was still training like I was 25 and I'm just getting hurt. And then, you know, still eating like I'm 25. So I was 20 pounds overweight and just, you know, and I just thinking, okay, yeah, you know, I'm still gotten through this and I did that for a long time. And then about, oh, two years ago, I found this guy called the, uh, the knees over toes guy. Oh yeah. Ben Patrick oh, hell yeah. started doing his stuff. Yep. Oh my God. Next level. Now it's like, all right, I can do more stuff. And then uh, earlier this year, um, Virginia High Performance uh, through the Navy SEAL Foundation, yep. those guys. I went and did their uh, month program. Did you do the one that's here in San Diego? Yeah, I'm a plank oh, owner on that one. That's awesome, Yeah, man. Dude, if you haven't done it, dude, get in there. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to let the guys that need it bad, you know, get in there. You know, I'm still doing pretty good. Um, so, but, dude, yeah, but, I've, heard, but, I've heard nothing but awesome reports. Yeah, they open things up, you know, physically, two workouts a day. They teach you about nutrition, and then they go into the cognitive stuff. Because, I mean, you know, we've taken some hits, mm-hmm. okay? Um, when you're a breacher at Damnak, you take uh, about a 1,000 uh, minimum stay, safe distance uh, explosive exposures per year. Mm-hmm. I, was down, I was a breacher there for seven years. Okay. Now my brain scan is clean, but I still have a few symptoms. I like faces. I don't, oh, man. 
I've known you for years. I, I'm not going to forget you. Um, but even guys that, you know, if I've been you know, a long time, you know, um, so I went there for the grand opening. Mm. I'm just getting in the elevator and I see this guy. I'm like, I know you from somewhere. It's Keith Davids. Damn. Okay. And he's like, yeah, coach, we're <laughs> on gold squadron together. And I'm like, Oh yeah, uh, and that used to really drive me nuts. And I, you know, but through working with them, you can't change that. Yeah. Okay, but <laughs> I mean, Keith's like, what, he's, man, just <laughs> like he's he's not a guy that's changed a lot. He no. looks. I went through buzz with him. He looks exactly the same as he did then. Yeah, like, so. yeah. And he's he's tried it zero one. He, yeah, he's yeah. you know, like he's kind of a big deal these yeah. days. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like, damn. Yeah. Anyway, but so that's that's my big symptom there is I as I, I lose that those faces and names. That's mm-hmm. my biggest thing. Um, other than that, I'm I'm pretty clean. Mm-hmm. You know, and it used to like make me you know get you know this. I should have known that. You know, I'd be pissed off at myself. But now that I understand that there, I've, I've taken a few hits, yeah. and uh, there is that. It's like I'm lucky that it's not something that. You know, I'm um, you know raging and, and hitting people or going you know off the rails. Nah, none of that happens. Yep. And uh, when I identify that that coming up, I can mm-hmm. just breathe through it. It's no problem. We're all good. You know, um, yeah, yeah. And that's you know you hear like the the guys that were in the NFL or they and they say you know they're all banged up now and they're like, well, what'd you do again? And they're like. Well, Hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's. But had I known this, it, you know, the, the, this is now available to the guys that are still doing the job. Yeah. So you know, I tell them, hey, use it. You know, I mean, keep being good. You know, stay in that fight for as long as you can. Yeah. I would have stayed longer. They're, they're, the next generation is going to be uh, a lot more durable over the long haul because their their nutrition's better. Mm-hmm. Their their PT is better. Like you said, man, we were doing bodybuilding or triathlon. Like there was a bodybuilding group of guys. There was like a triathlon group of guys. And no one was doing anything that really no. made like true sense. Yeah. <laughs> and, exactly. and then, you know, as the things moved along, you know, by the time we got around 2000, 2000, right, right around as the war was kicking off, started people started recognizing that we could actually be smarter about this stuff, that there was better ways to work out that there was better ways to eat like we start and now and now i think the final piece is like there's better ways to train where for instance is it really necessary to take a thousand breaches a year probably not at minimum safe distance you know there's a lot of things that we could do you know uh, you know i would i always think about being like an rso on Carl Gustav day, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, hey, hey, let's go out there. I'm taking a task unit worth of guys out there and everyone's going to shoot a Carl G and I'm, there's three of us RSOs. So I'm going to suck start yeah. freaking you got 20 to eat, of those yeah. things. You got to eat and the majority. Yeah. Like, well, I wonder why I got a little headache this <laughs> evening, you know? And so being smarter about that stuff, I think these guys, their durability, their longevity is going to be, is going to be better than ours. Yeah, and, and technology and recovery is a big thing. As I get older, it's like, okay, I can still do a lot of stuff now, but I can do it once, and then I got to go lay down for a bit. You know, whereas when you're young, yeah, bounce right back. Um, I was introduced to this thing called a shift wave, and you have to look it up. Uh-huh. I don't know the, all the, the science behind it. It looks like a lawn chair mm-hmm. with a bunch of discs in it that vibrate mm-hmm. to a certain, you know, it's, they're tunable. And I sit on this thing 
And can I tune mine to Metallica? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does a little biofeedback thing, so yeah. you could listen to Metallica if you wanted to, and just but it goes off your breathing and your you know it reads all that stuff. And um, yeah, I've been using it. It's it's kind of like a an active um, meditation type thing. You put on the headphones, mm-hmm. and it kind of walks you through that breathing in, breathing out, and it you know you sync with the uh, with the vibrations. And I mean, you know, they can they can basically duplicate your brain waves in sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, is right. what the the doc was telling me. It's like, oh, well, that's be kind of cool. And they built it in this lawn chair, so it's you could fly it away. It's a lawn chair with a. Um, like a little pelican case mm-hmm. that goes with it. And uh, I've been using the thing for about oh, five months now. So you like have one in your house? Yeah, yeah, they well, they, they gave you one? Gave me one yeah. to it's like, hey man, because right, I'm talking to this clinical psychiatrist in uh, um, Tulane University, mm-hmm. right? And um, anyway, uh, he shows me this thing. It's like, yeah, cause I, I'm, I'm kind of new age, my wife. She's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, she finds this stuff, you know, grounding. Mm-hmm. We've got a grounding sheet on the bed. There you uh, go. I go barefoot like all the time. Check. And and I'm, I'm, I'm being the technology with the uh, the smartwatch and the, the aura ring and all that stuff that monitors uh-huh. all this stuff. And when he saw that, I was like, huh. And I've got that information, that, that record. So he's oh, like, okay. hey, sit on this thing and, you know, just play around with it and we'll see how, how things go. And let me tell you, it's it's eye opening. You you get on this thing, and it's weird. It's you know, but it, it shakes you, you know, and then it'll just stop, and then you still feel like you're buzzing. You know, it's it's really cool. Um, and there's a bunch of different you know settings that you can do, and and you know uh, frequencies. It, it's it's badass. You know, I mean, look into it, but uh, it's 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 pretty cool. What's it called? It's called a shift wave. Shift wave. Uh, yeah, we're gonna check it out. Maybe I have to get in the shift wave. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Hey, if you want to try one, come over to my house. I, you right know, on. take a little ride on it. You know, and and, and see what's up. It it, uh, it shakes you like you know when you're like skydiving, you get out yeah. and it, and everything's like you know everything's going. You know the the it, it feels kind of like that. But uh, and you can adjust how much how much you know if you're you know tone it down. I crank that right. thing up all the time. Uh, what about ice? Are you doing ice and sauna or anything like that? I, I've got a far infrared sauna at the house, and that is the key. And I, my wife's talking about getting the uh, the cold plunge. I'm like, well, before we spend a bunch of money on that one, because that's just not the sauna is like uncomfortable slowly, and but it's warm, and you know, yeah, that ice plunge thing is like, uh, all right, maybe, maybe let's try it with this just the, the tub at first, you know. But my wife, she's a she's a hypnotherapist, yeah. and um, you know she does guided meditations. Yeah. You know, she's uh, got crystals in your house. Oh yeah, oh, full on. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting crystals. It. Oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> dream uh, catchers, <laughs> smudges, so, uh, incense, incense, and smudge pots, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He gets her all the bad energy, and you know she's she's. Um, Where did you, you know, find her? Um, okay, so while I was at Damnick, uh-huh. I went to go work with the uh, the special boat service oh, over there. Awesome. And, uh, and, so she's and a Brit. She's Brit. You yeah. know, my wife's a Brit. No, I didn't know that. We're going to have to link them up. Mm. But no freaking crystals in my house, bro. <laughs> she can come hang oh, it. Man. She can come get my ice bath. It's it, it, it's all good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll trade. You, you can come over to the shift wave. We'll do some shift wave. <laughs> and our wives can drink tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, she's got her own practice and she does uh, guided meditations on, uh, on, on YouTube. So she's, you know, oh, guided by Corey, you know, okay. and she just kids meditations and stuff like that. So she's, she's doing a lot of, a lot of good stuff and you know, you know, the left brain, right brain stuff, you know, I'm really left brain logical and she's so right brain and mm-hmm. just open to everything. And, and I think it, it makes us a good mix, mm-hmm. you know, and that's uh yeah. What was the name of her YouTube channel? Uh, it's uh, Guided by Corey. Guided by Corey. Yeah, C-O-R-Y is her name. Yeah. Is she t- talking in ASRM? Is that the right word? Voice? ASMR. ASMR. You know what that is? Yeah. That, that, Does she have that voice? She's, she's British. Come on, yeah. man. I mean, she's, she's, she's exotic straight <laughs> yeah. away. You're like, oh, wow, you know? <laughs> yeah, and she's doing some other stuff where it's just like it's really quiet and just makes noise. Yeah. yeah. She's just getting into that ASMR That's type. That's the thing, dude. Yeah. That's the thing. And then she'll just like quietly, you know, give you a little, little boost, you know, like lower your shoulders, you know, all that. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, so she's got a couple of uh, you know things set up like that. So she's, uh, you know, um, she's always looking for that that next thing to be uh-huh. able to to bring. Yeah, you know, I mean, bring peace and surrender. Yeah, to the soul. yeah, to, to the soul to, yeah. to anybody who want who needs it. You know, in the game. Everybody like needs it. it. You know, what the hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, but but before you retired, you did some time. What at Unit Three? Went yeah. out there for a bit. Yeah, backing up. Um, I I was working at Warcom, and I'm working for three retired SEAL Master Chiefs, yeah. Yeah. and they're like, "You should put your warrant package in. You should put your warrant package in." And I'm like, "Dude, if I do it, will you shut up?" <laughs> and so I did, and they picked me up first time. Yeah, of course. And I'm like, oh, "Okay," and that came with a one year unaccompanied. Yeah, you're gonna pay for it. Off to yeah, and and but I was up for orders anyway. Mm-hmm. They I could have said I could have declined. You know the the warrant and and they would have sent me anyway but anyway we had a, i met my wife at uh, when i was at the command so okay. we, we did like maybe you know three month deployments mm-hmm. she'd never done a six month deployment so now and now we have gone for a year yeah so yeah people how, are off the ceiling and go okay honey how, the, and, how those crystals work out over yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, they, they probably helped out a lot for her <laughs> mental state you know while i was gone and of course, you know, you know this, every time you leave town, that's when the car breaks yep. and the, you know, the, everything goes wrong. Yep. Um, but yeah, so she, yeah, she was thrown into the, straight into the fire at that point. And I went over and, uh, and did my warrant officer stuff over there. Um, I was the, uh, the training officer mm-hmm. and the combat systems officer. And, you know, whenever they needed something done, that's the warrant's job. Yep. You know, nobody knows what a warrant officer does, but we just fill in all the cracks, you know? Yeah. And yeah, you and I were running around Warcom at the same time because I was the freaking yeah. You were aide. the aide, and I was uh, so we'd high five each other in the hallway, and you'd laugh at me, going, "You freaking dork!" <laughs> hey, just, how many coins you got in your pocket, yeah, there, Jocko? <laughs> yeah, thank God it was for for Admiral McGuire because he was just like as you know, just a great dude. Yeah. But um, yeah, not fun. But <laughs> you'd be like, "Oh, I'm going back to freaking blow shit up again and shoot more guns," and I'd be like, "Cool, I'm going to write a freaking." Thank you note to <laughs> ambassador so and so. Go make these copies. <laughs> yeah, go make yeah. these copies. And then you closed out your career as a as a buds instructor. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when when you're a team guy, mm-hmm. the last place you want to go is buds because mm-hmm. you might miss something, you know. And that was the last place I went. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd been overseas for a year, um, and then made the deals like I'm just going to go back to uh, 
to uh, to buds for a couple of years and then go to a team. That's you know the deal I made with the uh, the uh, the detailer. Um, so I roll back, third phase training officer, and I didn't have to do any of the admin stuff that the that I was supposed to because we had an admin guy. We had a, a retiring. OSC mm-hmm. who did everything. Mm-hmm. I was like, dude, that's the way. So that freed me up. Mm-hmm. So I would just, you know, split my time on the island with the, the master chief and the uh, and the, the lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And we got out there and just, I spent most of my time, which kind of matched up with the uh, uh, weapons guys. And so I do line coaching. I didn't teach any classes, but I, you know, I was still doing warrant officer stuff. So I get pulled off of the uh, off the range to go deal with VIPs and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was learning how to teach at that point. Um, and then when twenty five rolled around, um, when just prior to you know my twenty five years, I uh, had this really cool idea. Admiral had a cool idea about anchor teams and he was going to send me to Bangladesh for four years. I was like, you know what? Oh, look at the time. <laughs> 25 years. We're done. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Are, you know, oh, CB, you know, uh, yeah. was like, you sure? Because, you know, once you submit those papers, you can't take them back. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. That would I, That's not me. I, I do everything in the Navy. I can't do this. I've got two daughters at home yeah. and they're preteens. It was not a good time for, for that. Um, and he goes, okay, want a job? <laughs> so I rolled out of there and I rolled into the instructor position and, um, you know, we started off, um, and we started immediately making changes. With, um, there weren't enough seals to be buds instructors at the time. Okay. They want them out, you know, doing yeah. seal stuff. So they decided to do contract buds instructors. And then the first batch was done like a year before I retired. So Gordon Evans, uh, I don't know if you know him. He was no. at Team 5 for a long time. Um, and he and I were the the, the guys, uh, he and I and Nick White were the uh, the instructors at um, for, for weapons. Mm-hmm. And because we were there, we were just there, the idea was like, I can be there for five years and then we'll have enough guys and we'll just backfill you and you know, send you on your way. Well, so you like wearing a blue and gold yeah. full on? Oh yeah, blue and gold, eight point cover, Boy Scout shorts, the whole nine yards. What they call? What the students call you? Just instructor, Mister Coachiolo, Mister Coach. Okay, yeah, yeah, and and it was we wanted to make that difference between us because when I stepped up to a guy on the line, I didn't want him thinking, "Oh crap, this yeah, guy's going to hammer me." Yeah. I want him to think, "Oh, it's Coach. He's going to help me." Mm-hmm. All right, so I was never the heavy. You know, and if guys kept on screwing up, I'd go, oh, hey, well, so what could you do right about now that would make you never want to do that ever again? <laughs> Get wet. Oh, good idea. You know, go hit the dip tank, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we, we took this um, up until then. If you had somebody who knew how to teach weapons, guys learned more. If you didn't, and you guys were only there for two years, so you had a good shooter, you know, and that'd be great if you somebody who wasn't that good. Uh, so you, you were kind of relying on how good the class could be, right? Mm-hmm. You, you were, the class was guiding the schedule and how far can we get the class? And we changed that. We're like, nope, we're going to reverse engineer this. And on this day, you will be here. On this day, you will be here. On this day, you know. And we started writing stuff down and trying stuff. It was like a big laboratory mm-hmm. on how to shoot. And um, 
so we, you know, Gordy and I, we, we wrote things down. We tried new stuff. If it worked, we kept it. If it didn't, then, you know, and we, we just modified, we started calling them the sacred scrolls. It was basically the dailies, you know, mm-hmm. and then that grew into, all right, okay, here's the things you want to be looking for. So when we taught the new instructors, mm-hmm. like on this day, this is what they're going to be doing wrong. Okay. And so be looking for it. And this is the, the corrections that we want to start and every day built on itself. We would teach them the night before, after dinner. And then they would dry fire for 45 minutes to an hour and get some sleep. And then the next morning, we'd go to the range. And they would you know, warm up and then do what, uh, what they learned the night before, have lunch, come back for a range in the afternoon, again, more, second range there. And then they'd come back, eat dinner, and then back in the classroom for the next thing that was going. And, and we pushed that along and we built this system where it's like when we went through training, some guys could shoot and some guys couldn't. Mm-hmm. No, everybody can shoot. I can teach you to shoot as long as you listen to what I'm saying and do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're going to fight me, okay, there's only so much I can do. I can't crawl into your head mm-hmm. and, and control you. I was talking to some young guys um, and I was basically saying, hey, there's some people, like you take 100 people, there's going to be a person, maybe one or two people, they're not going to be able to shoot a pistol well. Now, mm-hmm. very seldom will you get someone that literally like isn't going to be able to pass. How often would somebody not be able to like like get dropped from buds for pistol? How often would that happen? Um, I think it probably happened in the 13 years I was there, maybe eight times. Okay. So it's pretty rare that someone gets struck, but probably a lot more guys would get rolled. We would roll them. Yeah, yeah. we'd roll them, and then they would come back. And if they you know, they still couldn't do it, and we we designed a remediation for them so that when they weren't on the island, and it, it, initially it was like you know you, you fail pistol, you're off the island. It's like, well, no, let's keep them around. Oh yeah, you know, and Let them keep they'd shoot more. And so uh, week one was uh, our, our weapons one. And then we'd leave the island and demo would come in. They do arts and crafts with explosives for a week. And then we'd come back and teach them combat shooting. Well, halfway through the combat shooting was their last attempt. So they've got all those extra trigger squeezes. So most of the time they would make it. And if they couldn't, then the next time they came through, they would. So occasionally when a guy, one of those eight people, what, what, what are they doing? What does it look like to you? Okay. If I tell a guy, Hey, you're doing, and it's not like, hey, don't do that. I'm like, no, I'm going to show you physically. If I, I'll put my hands on you and say, no, hold the gun like this, squeeze it like this. I can use all these, all the techniques I could. But if you can't do that, if you're not applying what I teach you, and then then there's the guys that are great when there's no stress, mm-hmm. but just the stress of that stopwatch mm-hmm. was enough to just blow their mind. Yeah. And they were great when they're not under stress. Well, yeah. that's not the job you're applying yeah, for here, not, guys. That's not going to be a good team guy, dude. <laughs> you know? That ain't going to work yeah, out. That, this is the, the least amount of stress we could possibly give you. It's a stopwatch, okay? Nobody's shooting back at you. No one's yelling at you. Just get up there and perform. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell him, I was like, look, we're looking for that guy who can compartmentalize, who can take all those noises in his head and put them aside and just get to work. You know, just do the job. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to the, all. you know, because everybody's got that noise in their head that's, you know, overthinking. And, you know, you could tell by the guy's target whether he was an overthinker or whether he was just sloppy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, overthinkers, when we started giving them time drills, their shot groups got better <laughs> just because they didn't oh, have enough time to overthink. Time to yeah. 
you know, and those guys were pretty easy to correct. Um, the, the guys that were like really good, you know, when there was no time limit and then you give them the time limit and they start going, you know, nuts, you know, and they're, they're, everything would open up. It's like, okay, those guys are just trying to, they're, they're racing the clock. It's like, no, no. And I give them techniques and they would work. Mm-hmm. And then you teach guys how to move and shoot and how to use cover and how to transition from your rifle to your pistol and there's all this stuff that we're getting on buds. I mean, you know, I got I picked up the gun off of the bench and shot it at the round target mm-hmm. and then put it back down again and that was the training that we got in buds. So guys are leaving buds and initially, um, in the first couple of years, the new guys were showing up to the team and out shooting the old guys because nice. they didn't have any. You know, they had fewer training scars, yeah. you know, and we had driven them to this. And, you know, we were still still working that, and it was still it, it's still working now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're now focused more on combat shooting earlier, and they, they've moved the qual courses to later on in training. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's changed up a little bit, but apparently that's it, there's some uh, having some good results um, as well. Right on. It, so... so you wrapped up with that. You retired in 2010 after you got done with your buds career. Mm-hmm. Um, then you rolled right into doing that contract, and you did that for like freaking yeah, 13, decade, 13 years, 13 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I trained, you know, you know, guys. I did platoons with their kids came through, and you know, it was that was rewarding. I would like, you know, maybe like, take a picture of them and just <laughs> randomly, hey, what's your, what's your dad's phone number, you know, and just send a, a random picture. You know, it's like, ha ha, taking care of your boy, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, w- yeah, we, we learned a lot. And I, and I, I taught pretty much everybody who's uh, an operating SEAL now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you went through BUDS in the last 13 years, you probably remember my name because Coach Yolo is kind of hard to forget. Uh, actually, 16 years because I was warrant officer for three. So it was 16 years total that I was, uh, I was working there. And um, it, was, it wasn't the best job I ever had in my life. But I'd give it second best. <laughs> yeah. Tough to be yeah. being an assaulter, but teaching yeah. people how to do the job, man. That's awesome. And yeah. then, and so now now you're done with that. And we kind of already talked about what you're doing now, but mm-hmm. just, just so we've got, what's the website that you, what's your website? Yeah. Uh, perf- or, uh, sorry. Practical? Uh, practical Firearms Instruction uh, dot com. And on there, you know, I do individuals, I'll do groups, whatever. Um, you know, and it's just a matter of scheduling these days because I've gotten pretty busy. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been back to uh, uh, Tennessee and Massachusetts uh, working with the Smith and Wesson guys trying to get this, uh, you know, the initial uh, pistol offering from Lipsy's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going there, what, day after tomorrow. Nice. For their, the grand opening. They're moving a lot of their manufacturing stuff down to Tennessee from Massachusetts. Yeah, well. And, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Pay, pay attention, Massachusetts. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> yeah, be, be business friendly out there. That's my recommendation. And you you have an Instagram too, which is at Practical Firearms Instruction. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't see. I did all this stuff just kind of on the side yeah. when I had a, a day job, and I just kind of I didn't really look at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know now. You know, this is becoming my day job. I'm, yeah. I'm having to make that adjustment. So, well, yeah. You know, you got a lot, you got a ton of knowledge, you know, um, 30 years in NSW, and a lot of that really focused specifically on shooting. So, for you to not share that knowledge seems like it would be, uh, 
a, a bad thing to do and for you to be able to take look there's it's a beautiful time that you can someone like you can can share your information with anybody that wants it i mean mm-hmm. that's awesome and and then of course there's like you said there's more advanced things if people want to hire you to come out but if they can't hire you to come out because they don't have the money or don't have the time, cool. There's the information. So yeah, or yeah, I mean, tacticalhive.com or just put in Tactical Hive on YouTube mm-hmm. and something will come up. And you just got to search our backlog, and you know, I'll teach you how to hold a gun, how to you know point shoot, and you know, just give you gear ideas. You know, and and we've been thinking about this for a long time. So mm-hmm. I've shifted this because you know some of the stuff I was doing was low vis, so we learned to you know go concealed and all that and that's that's what people are going to be doing and what you're going to learn from me is you know how to use it but there's there's a um, priority of training here okay so number one for training is being able to employ the gun clearing your garment and getting the gun into action and then the next thing is correcting malfunctions Okay, I don't care about changing magazines because you're gonna pull that thing in. If you get a click instead of a bang, you gotta be able to fix it like right now. Get those reps in. And then we'll start talking about other stuff, you know? Um, so employing the gun first and and or you know, and then worrying about uh, uh, correcting malfunctions and then we'll go on to other all the other ancillary stuff. Mm-hmm. But those are the two things. That, that's what's gonna matter right in yeah. the moment, right? Yeah. And when we talk about gear, the gear has to work. Okay, number one, it has to be portable because you can have something that goes bang every time, but it weighs 10 pounds. Guess what? You know, that that Mark 23, it's an awesome pistol, but you are not carrying that, you know, on a daily basis. So portability is number one. Okay, reliability is number two. Accuracy is is a far third because most of the, you know, uh, statistically, most of your encounters are going to be at close range. Mm And you're going to be point shooting. You're going to be focused on that target, and you're just going to point that gun out there and start squeezing. Now, if you've done that with two eyes open and you understand how to aim with two eyes open, and I can teach you how to do that too. That's not hard. Um, that that'll give you a good, you know, a good starting point, good foundation for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're going to start with that combat first, and if you want to you know, branch out and do other stuff, fine. But so, you know. Portability first, reliability, and then worry about accuracy. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, you know, capacity of the gun. I mean, depends. You know, you have different threat levels. So I carry a different gun depending on what my perceived threat level is. You know, anyway, from a little seven shot, uh, twenty two magnum, you know, revolver, Smith and Duff, Smith and Wesson, to you know, thirty eight, to you know, little subcompact nine mil, to a you know up to a, uh, like a Glock 19 or a, uh, oh, SIG 320, you know. So, and that's all depends on what your threat level, your perceived threat level is going to be. And then you learn how to deal with each one. So you dress to the gun a little bit, you know, all these little things that, 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 that come up. But because I've been thinking about these things for so long, you know, it's now, you know, and I know how to, transfer that information to other people um i will give it all to you on on youtube i want everybody who whether you have money or not to be able to understand this stuff and and if you already have a way that's working for you i'm not going to say you're wrong you know because if i give you something that's different from the way you train Mm -hmm. then you're going to have to understand you're going to have to 
retrain. Yeah, you're gonna you have to invest time. Yeah, untrain that retrain. And then retrain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's a thing, man. Yeah. Muscle memory. Muscles don't have memory. Yeah, but they all your your nerves get myelinated every time you do something, and if you do it the same, it's yeah. The, those those pathways. You know, those neural pathways get insulated and you start moving, you know, a whole lot faster and smoother and you don't have to think about it as much. Yeah. Yeah. But that comes with reps and it comes, you know. So, I mean, I'll get into that with, with guys, uh, you know, I can talk about it on YouTube, but then you got to go find it. If you want to come find me, then, you know, we'll go to the range and I'll, I'll, I'll fix you. It, it's a pain in the ass in California because, you know, California is so ungun friendly mm-hmm. so i mean we travel to other states uh i don't like to travel very much i, I kind of like my my wife mm-hmm. and my kids my and grandkids the, the shockwave or yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the burning sage <laughs> the shift wave yeah, yeah the, the, the sage burning and you know, all that stuff man it's all good but, um yeah so I, that's what i'm doing now um you know at the moment we'll see what happens with uh with uh, you know, how well people respond to the gun stuff and you know, and, you know the watch band thing i think it's going to be a million dollar idea you know because it's not going to be very expensive but it's going to be really cool mm-hmm. so commando bands you're going to want one you, you, oh, you, i already want one i'll, I'll give you a prototype right and, on uh, <laughs> i'm ready for the commando band <laughs> right on uh does that get us up to speed then we good yeah man i think so that's that's up to today man right here on. we are now <laughs> and then i run into you getting gas uh yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. hey dude you're not working for the navy anymore you should come on my podcast I'm like and that now's the right time to do it. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Right on, Carrie. Um, you got any questions? Uh, no questions. I I just I'm a big fan of what you're doing, removing that barrier for gun owners, especially new gun owners, uh, getting them up to speed. That's awesome, man. And I want nothing more than a carbine or a carbine pistol now. <laughs> and and maybe you say, what was that word? Is that a uh, pistol caliber carbine? Is that, I think that's caliber yeah, carbine. the PCC. So right that on. and the commando band, that's like my Christmas wish list. Right <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> right on. You got any, any uh, closing thoughts? Dude, I just want to thank you for allowing me to come up here. I, I, I have been, you know, I'm a big fan. You, <laughs> honestly, you know, Jocko, you're doing stuff um, that, it matters you know you're, you're bringing information to people that uh you know maybe no one knows about you know you, you interview guys you're a good interview and people want to come and, and and share their story and uh i enjoy just listening i mean any, obviously it's not there's no like time limit here because you know you just keep going you know start you know but awesome this has been really really good and uh i just want to thank you for that man right on bro well thanks for coming on man it's, it's awesome to see you and catch up and get your experiences get your lessons learned and and like i said man thanks for setting a great example for me as a young new guy i definitely needed it and uh you know thanks for your service yeah. to the navy to the teams and to the country man Appreciate thanks it. for making me feel old man <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's not me. (laughs) Thanks, bro. Roger that, man. And with that, Mark Coach, Coachiolo, has left the building. Good to see Coach, man. Still getting after it. Still. Still getting after it after all these years. And what I I was, look, obviously awesome to hear about his experiences and, and just a great dude. But I like the fact that he went, Look, just talking about the health and wellness part of his journey at one juncture, 
he's sort of like done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I got to this point, this many deployments, this much time, I was done, broken. And now, back in the game. All the way. Back in the game. Yeah, man. And, and that, that stretching piece, I feel that, man, because yep. like the, my whole upper body, you know, feels like a clenched fist sometimes, you mm-hmm. know? And God, I feel that like cracking and stuff. You gotta stay on top of that stuff. Yeah, and, and what, what I like about it is, it's not too late. I don't know where yep. you are right now. I don't know what's happening, what's happening in your world, but you might be feeling like, oh, it's too late. Oh, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And you know, this is this goes back to a conversation I had with Bert Soren. I was talking about overhead squats. I, I hurt my arm. Freaking Dean hurt my arm. Dean Lister, you bastard, hurt my arm doing a showing a move, and I couldn't overhead squat for for months. Like. 10 months, I could not lock out my arm. Like I could do a pull up, but I couldn't go all the way down. So I could do everything, you know, after a little bit of time I could do a pull up, after a little time I could do, you, you know, an overhead press, but I just couldn't lock it out. But an overhead squat, I couldn't do. So by the time it finally healed, what I had to do is I, I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna do overhead squats, I'm gonna try it. Oh, I can lock it out, okay, that's feeling good. But my mobility was so bad that I couldn't do it with like any weight at all. So I said, all right, well, PVC pipe, let's let's go. And I'll do, P- when, when this happened, I was using the frame of the squat rack to keep my, to keep the, the PVC pipe over, directly over my head, like not, and I would just started going, all right, this week I'll go, you know, 50% down. Next week I'll go 60% down, 80% down. Finally got the mobility back. Then I started adding, then I started doing it with the bar. Then I started doing it with, you know, 25. So just slowly build it back up. And what I told Bert was there's a moment where you think, oh, this movement is now gone. This is something that I'm not able to do anymore. Because I could have said that, like, oh, well, hell, it's really hard for me. It feels uncomfortable. It hurts. Maybe that I, I, I shouldn't do them anymore. And that's the wrong answer. You need to put your ego in check and say, okay. Time to rebuild that movement. Time to get this movement back. Do not submit to time and age. Don't submit. It's a fight, but keep fighting. Do what you do. got to do to get it back. And what's incredible is the human being, the human body will adapt and it will make progress. And this has been proven over and over again. This is just coaches, another guy that's come out and said, I was done. Didn't have any mobility in my shoulders. Sore all day. Bro- broken here. This is hurt. And then he put protocols into place. He started doing the proper maintenance. He started cleaning up the the food, cleaning up the workouts, doing the right things, getting the stretching done. And now he's back in the game. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And it's great to hear coach, great dude. And thanks to him for coming on. And, And by the way, one thing you can do with this, def reset, right? This is a good way to get yourself back on, on, on the path, the path. And you know, you and I were talking about the path yesterday because we were talking, you know, you and I, a few other people, we were talking about the, what happens in people's lives, what little turns they make, what little decisions they make, what little moves they make. And, and let's face it, every decision you make is going gonna, is gonna to have an impact. And if you take that little decision to eat a donut versus the little decision to eat a piece of beef jerky, 
and you start multiplying those and compounding those out, they they change who you are. If you make a little decision that I'm gonna sleep in today versus the little decision that, you know what, I'm just gonna get up and push through this workout, and you multiply that over time, these are two different people. These are two different human beings in six months. In six months. In six months, that transformation can take place. And then what else happens? What else happens? What else goes on when you start making one bad decision? You were talking about drinking, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, we were on that, uh, hanging out, and you were talking about, you know, basically, if you were drinking, mm-hmm. things were going to go down. If you weren't drinking, things were going to get better. You're like, hey, I might not get in, I might not have a, a, a chaos night tonight. I might not take some big giant step back tonight if I have a few drinks. But in the next three times of drinking, something's going to happen and I'm going in the wrong direction. Otherwise, you just put that and be like, okay, I'm not doing that anymore, which is the decision you made. I'm not doing that anymore. And all of a sudden, now my life's not going backwards. My life's going forward. Every The trajectory of your life changes. And that's what this is. To me, it's so important to think about our lives and the trajectory of our lives. Because that's, what's the meaning of trajectory? It's where we're going. It's, where, it's what it is, where we're going. Is our trajectory going up or is our trajectory going down? And every little decision that you make either elevates it or it starts to bring it down. So keep that in mind. That's the, that's Def Reset, right? Def Reset is an opportunity to say, okay, for this for the next 30 days, I know I'm going up. My trajectory will be going up. And that is going to put that trajectory on a, on a pace and in a direction that if you look up in six months, you look up in a year, you're a different person. That's and, what we're doing. And it comes down to that PVC pipe decision, mm-hmm. right? Some people are more afraid of taking that step back, of, of picking up that PVC pipe, than they are of letting go of mm-hmm. the overhead squat for the rest of their, their lives. Yep. They'd rather let that go and never do it again than have to subord- subordinate that ego, mm-hmm. pick up that PVC pipe, and start from square one. And that's where that decision gets made. And there are PVC pipes all over life. Yeah, all over your life. Yeah. Where... Y- you look at that thing and you 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 subordinate that ego, pick up that PVC pipe, mm-hmm. start at square one that again, little step, and you start to build, and that's where you start to get the momentum, get that trajectory, yeah, get back on the path. So def reset, it's we're doing it in January, but you got to prep for it now. I just we posted some videos, I posted a little podcast about it. Just get start to prepare for it. Uh, workouts and fitness, Jason Kalipa is going to be guiding those things. Leadership with Echelon Front. I'm going to give some some discipline directives. And then Jocko Fuel, it, it, we're all doing it together. Um, TheDefReset.com. Go check it out. And by the way, Jocko Fuel, get yourself get yourself ready for it. Get, your, get the junk food out of your house. Get the freaking Doritos out of your house. Get the chocolate chip cookies out of your house. Get milk cookies. <laughs> That's what we're doing. So, jockofuel.com, get your greens, get your creatine. Creatine is so good for you. It's good for your mind, it's good for your body. Get 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 these things so that you're ready. You can kick this thing off right. You're going to have you're going to be working hard during def reset. So, get yourself some joint warfare, some super cool. Just you guys know what we're doing. jockofuel.com. 
Go get the fuel that you need. You can get, also get it at Wawa. You can get a vitamin shop, GNC, military commissaries, AFES, Hannaford, Dash Stores in Maryland, Wakefern, ShopRite, HEB down in Tejas, Meyer up in the Midwest, Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness, Shields, small gyms all over the place. I know we got Victory MMA and Fitness. We're here. Guess what we sell? Jocko Fuel. If you want to sell Jocko Fuel at your gym, Email jfsales at jockofuel.com. If, you, if you're going to a gym and you want them to Jocko Fuel, give them that information so they can make it happen. So that's what we're starting off with, some jockofuel.com. Also, originusa.com. American-made clothing. Freedom that you put on your body. Liberty that you wear. That's what we're doing at Origin USA. Anti-slavery anti-communism, anti-suffering, anti-destruction of the earth. That's what we're doing at originusa.com. You know what they do with uh, the dye and the chemicals that they use in China? When they're, when they're done processing, they dump it in the river, goes into the ocean, kills everything. They're, they're, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And all these big freaking liars in the fashion industry with their with their little uh, virtue signaling, talking about how they're for the environment. They're not, they're, they're buying, their, they're literally paying for the destruction. That's what they're doing. They're liars, they're, they're, they're scum. So don't help them by buying their shit. Buy American made, buy originusa.com. That's what we're doing, jujitsu gear. Because if you're not training jujitsu, you're missing out. You're missing out 100%. Jiu-jitsu, workout gear, hunt gear, t-shirts, jeans, boots. That's what we're doing. We're saving freedom. OriginUSA.com. We also talked a lot about the path today. And you can get your discipline equals freedom gear representing on the path at Jocko Store. That's JockoStore.com. Uh, t-shirts, rash guards, hats. Just going hoodies. with the script. You're going with the go with the Echo Charles. Go with the script. Bro. Representing <laughs> on the path. Yeah. Going with the script. Got to hold it down Rolling for the Hawaiian. You're just holding it, holding it down for the Hawaiian. That was, that's what we're doing. <laughs> that's what we're doing, man. Well, if you were going to say something that was your own, let's mm-hmm. say. Let's say you had the creative liberties sure. just to get crazy. What would you be well, saying about JoggleStore.com? fire one off right fire now? Fire one off, bro. Let's <laughs> right see where on. you're at. Here's so, a test. This is a test. So there, there's, <laughs> something, there's something that happens to you deep inside when you throw on anything with the x flag this x flag that's on my left arm right here as soon as i put on a shirt that has that x flag on it something inside of my brain changes my eyebrows drop a little bit my chin lowers my shoulders come back a little bit i am ready to go into what i'm about to do when i throw on any piece of clothing with the x flag on it i don't know what it is but that's what happens to me and i see that with other people too i've been in the we've been in the airport and we've seen a defcore f- flag you know a def flag on a shirt in the wild and that person is ready to get after it <laughs> and they come up and they say what's up and they talk about how they're on the path and how they're in the game and and we go and we do work and that's what i like to see there's ec so, e- e- got just just got left in the dust no, he's bro. been saying the same shit for the last five years <laughs> and you rolled in i put you on the spot a little bit sure but you were ready 
Yeah. You know why? You had that deathcore flag on. You were like, what? Oh, you want me to talk some? You want me to say what's up? I'll tell you what's up. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, Freaking too. Freaking K-Dog coming in hot. You will feel it. And if you if oh, you yeah. want if you want a deaf shirt, a, a new deaf shirt every month, we've also got the Shirt Locker. That's mm-hmm. a su- subscription service. And Echo Charles just going crazy on the designs, just <laughs> awesome designs. Um, and a lot of good reception from the troopers in the game, too. Um, and every event we're at now, there's there's kind of a, a segmentation yeah. of of the, the the get after it, just great shirts, and then you see the that shirt locker shirt, and it stands out. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole group of people who are in the game on the <laughs> shirt locker shirts, and we see them and we say what's up and we recognize them. Check. Check it out, jogglestore.com. Check out primalbeef.com, coloradocraftbeef.com. You need steak yes. in your life. You need. You and I had steak last night, we matter did. of fact. Yeah, that so. was some good steak. But I'll tell you what, you, I could tell it wasn't the best steak. It wasn't Colorado craft beef. It wasn't primal beef. It was normal steak. Yeah. Look, it's a ribeye. I'm not turning down a ribeye. Yeah. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into it. <laughs> I'm going to get into it. But now that I regularly eat primal beef and Colorado craft beef. Now that that's just part of the whole scene, you know, the the normal ribeyes, they don't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah, they just don't do it anymore. So check those out. Also subscribe to the podcast. Also jockounderground.com. Also YouTube channels. Check them out. We got the, the Jocko... F- Jocko Podcast YouTube channel. We got the Jocko Fuel YouTube channel. We got the Origin USA YouTube channel. We got the Echelon Front YouTube channel. We got all kinds of YouTube for you to watch. Psychological Warfare. Get that if you don't have it, I guess. If you don't have it by now, you probably, I mean, your life is probably falling apart, you know, so sorry. But if you want to get your life back together, (laughs) Psychological Warfare, wherever you can get an MP3, it's in there. FlipsideCanvas.com, Dakota Meyer out there making cool stuff for you to hang on your wall and keep you on the path. Books, you know I've written a bunch of books. Get them. The new, the newest version of Leadership Strategy and Tactics, Mod 2 is out. There's some key information, some key updates in there. The, the Extreme Ownership Leadership Loop Talk to you about how to make decisions. You and I were in a critical situation the other day and you know what the you know what the first thing in the extreme ownership leadership loop is? What's the number one thing? What's time? Time. So you and I were in a time critical situation, and we reviewed what had happened. My entire thought process took place in less than one minute. You can tell that if you review what I did, mm-hmm. the the very first thing I thought of was time. This is I need to make a decision right now, and that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. All in one minute. Right. A whole. Game-changing scenario was unfolding. And in one minute, I'd already made a decision and was executing. Right? Like, that's a thing. And we have receipts to confirm that. Yeah, yeah well, that's the thing. We went back, <laughs> and I was like, you know, we had, a, we had a whole scenario that could have blown up, right? And then we kind of were debriefing it. And I was like, let me pull out the receipts on this. And sure enough, everything was done in one minute. Mm. <laughs> and that, that's, that's the benefit of running the loop yep. habitually. Yep. Getting those reps in. Yep. You get quick with it. Yep. And it was just all boom going down. And the time, the immediate decision was made. And then it was like I was running the rest loop. Okay, how do we how do we support what's happening? Right? How are we gonna cover move? We we need a simple plan right here. Like just went through it. That's what we do. Yep. And guess what? All worked out. 
kind of to a hundred percent level. <laughs> kind of really worked out. Hundred. So that's what we're doing. Get that uh, leadership strategy and tactics. The new one, the mod two of that field manual, and then I got a bunch of other kids books. The kids books, adult books. Check out the kids books. Way of the Warrior Kid one, two, three, four, and five. These are going to help the kids that you know. All of them. This is Christmas right here, by the way. Oh, yeah. Th- this is what you do for Christmas. This is what you do for every kid that you know. You, oh, what do you do? What do you, get, what do you get for Christmas for a kid? You change their life. You change the trajectory of their life. That's what you do for Christmas for a kid. Warrior Kid box has the flag in it, has the book in it. This is what you do for kids. <sighs> there you go. Freaking Santa Carey over there putting out word. <laughs> bro. Uh, I, my niece and nephew. Hell yeah. Got warrior kid stuff. They are warrior kids in the game now. And my brother-in-law, my sister and brother-in-law's garage hangs the warrior kid flag. They are in the game How now. How old are they? Uh, seven, five, and seven. How are they doing? Awesome. Focused. Awesome. Focused. Uh, little dude, my, uh, my nephew, has to be benched in games because he scores too much. That, that's what's happening. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Little dude. Might want to get your kids these books. And your neighbor's kids, because wouldn't it be nice if there's a fire at your house someday and your neighbor who's nine years old comes over, breaks out a hose and puts out the fire before it engulfs your your house? Be nice, wouldn't it? That's what a warrior kid's going to do. You know what a normal kid's going to do? Keep playing video games. That's what's going to happen. Don't Let's get the neighborhood watch going with the children. So there you go, warrior kids. Also, Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. That is what we do. We work with companies. We embed into companies and we help align the leadership around the principles that we utilized in combat, that we utilize inside of all these businesses that you hear us talk about and that we've helped scores of other companies get increased profitability, get increased efficiency, and get improved relationships up and down and across their chain of command. This is what we do at Echelon Front. So go to echelonfront.com if you need leadership consultants inside your organization. We also have some live events. You can check those out also at echelonfront.com. We have a train, an online training platform as well. It's at extremeownership.com. This is where you can learn these principles that you can then apply to every aspect of your life. I don't care what you're doing right now. I don't care if you're a 22 year old that's hunting for a job and you're making uh, you know, 80 bucks a week working in the school library. You still need a plan. You need to put things together. You need to figure things out. You can utilize these leadership principles if you're that person or if you're the CEO of a giant company with 8,000 employees. We will teach you these principles. Extremeownership.com, that's what we're doing. Comply them across the board. Yes, sir. Uh, also, Extreme Ownership Academy, uh, new course out, uh, ex- Extreme Ownership for Middle Management. A lot of demand for that one. Mm-hmm. Questions all the time about, hey, I'm a, I'm a new leader or I'm a just got promoted to a middle management position, what do I do? That course is going to tell you. Yeah, and I guess I should have made that a little more clear. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're the lowest person on the totem pole that just got hired 
or you're out looking for a job, or you're the senior person at that organization, or you're anyone in between. Go to extremeownership.com. Learn the skill of leadership. Also, if you want to help service members, active and retired, you want to help their families, Gold Star families, check out Markley's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. And if you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, we've got heroesandhorses.org. Help Micah Fink bring our veterans up into the mountains so they can find themselves. And then Jimmy May's organization, beyondthebrotherhood.org. And actually, Coach has done some stuff for them as well. So check that out. If you want to help veterans transition to the civilian sector, we appreciate it. If you want to connect with us on the algorithms, on, on the websites of the world, well, let's remember what we've got for Coach. Coaches, you can check out practicalfirearmsinstruction.com. You can check out tacticalhive.com. And also, he's on the the gram at practical firearms instruction and of course carrie is at carrie helton straight up we we, we got it. it handled we did it. last time you you sat in the chair yeah. what was going on you had an underscore in there I, I had an underscore in there carrie underscore helton shout out to jack daniel hill just getting getting it done getting no matter it done. what it i what can you what else can you throw at that kid like, bro let's face it any, if you got the, when, when, let's face it, Carrie Helton, you want to talk about the trajectory of your life? Mm-hmm. When you had that underscore in there, bro, bro, <laughs> nothing was good, bro. <laughs> nothing was going good. It was yeah. just like the whole world was kind of falling apart. 100%. Boom. Then it's, you meet someone now. We, we have to talk about you on the podcast. We want to talk about how to connect with you. We just need to say at Carrie Helton. At Carrie Helton. We don't need to say underscore. Back up. We're, we're, we're on the, the trajectory we're, is looking on. <laughs> so check out. Uh, at Carrie Helton, no underscore. And I'm at Jocko Willing. Just watch out for the algorithm. It's going to grab you and it's going to try and kill you. Am I exaggerating? I don't know. It's going to kill your time. I promise you that. And what are you? You are your time. So, yep, it's killing you. Watch out for it. Thanks once again to Mark Cocciolo. Uh, for joining us just awesome to see you awesome to talk to you and awesome to share your story and it's it's awesome for guys like mark to be out here and communicate and and share his lessons and there's a lot of guys like mark in the shadows you know they're not going to be on social media they're not doing these kinds of things but they're out there they're out there protecting america and thanks to all those folks that are out there right now doing this. We don't see them. We don't see them on on social media. We don't see them, you know, um, in the interwebs. We don't see them. Why? Because they're out there doing God's work. So thanks to all the folks in uniform around the world right now, in harm's way, to keep us free. And the same goes to our police and law enforcement. Firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thank you all for going into harm's way every day to keep us safe here at home. And everyone else out there, as coach taught countless SEALs over the years, keep your eyes on that target because that's where it's happening. And that's how you get things done. And until next time, this is Echo. And until next time, this is not Echo. This is Carrie and Jocko. <laughs>